Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. Notes and Queries, Number 177, March 19, 1853. By Various. Cocinus Cocinus. Homo velissimus enisi nisi infimus concini ministerius natus, says Decanch. Charpentier adds beggar. Here it means the lowest kind of messengers or errand boys, like skulls or scullions in colleges. Cocinus, Cocinus. But this is too low an estimate of the class. Having disposed of this passage, I wish now to draw the attention of your readers who have taken part or interest in the late discussion in your pages upon certain surnames, to the bearing which this extract, and others expressive of the individuals there referred to, has upon that numerous series of names ending in cock, about which so many, and for these regenerate days, some singular suggestions have been made. The discussion was, I believe, commenced in the Gentleman's Magazine for May, 1837, and in the number for the same month in the following year, J. G. N. suggested that many of those names might be referred to forms of cock, coach, lecoque, which occur in records as abbreviations of cocus, cocus, cook. How cavalierly the suggestions thus afforded by Mr. Urban's pages were treated by Mr. Lower, your readers will see who refer to the pages of that gentleman's work upon English surnames, indicated in the author's last communication to you. N and Q, Volume 5, page 509. But their faith in the improvement, N and Q, has so greatly contributed to effect in such matters, will not however let them be deterred by the terms there used from pursuing the subject. It will be seen that my present contribution will modify the view taken by J, G, N, but also, to a considerable extent, support it. I am not aware that any attempt has been made to show how early these names were used. I can refer to several instances of the names, Wilcock, or Wilcock, and Badecock, two complete examples of the kind, in the documents of the reign of Edward I. Those of your readers who are members of the Camden Society have now before them a copy of a document in which the first of those names occurs several times. I refer to the small household role of John of Brabant while at the English court, which is printed in the last volume of the Camden Society's Miscellany. No one doubts that by far the greater part of the names in question were originally corrupted forms of Christian names, with a suffix. Mr. Lower has done good service in showing thus much. And any one who refers to the list in the royal wardrobe account of 28 EDW. I and especially those who can also consult other similar manuscripts, will admit that it would be quite possible that any Christian name might have been so used. So numerous must have been the class of persons called. Kokini, I will not further trespass upon your space with specimens of names so manufactured, as they can be formed with ease upon the first name, Wilcock, from Willocock, the contracting mark being dropped. The final letter, K, is of importance as distinguishing the derivative from the parent word, cocus, from what period, and why is doubtful, that there is but little early documentary evidence of the names in their complete state, might be attributed to the inferior class of the individuals so designated. Mr. Lower's sole explanation of the terminal in question is, that it is a diminutive like, kin, and in justice to that view, 
I must not pass over the evidence afforded by the Brabant roll of a case where the two names seem to be interchanged. One of Prince John's pages is named on the roll, Hankin, page 7, line 3, while, on the wardrobe account three years previous, where the servants are specified by name, Hancock, is there, who is most likely the same person. It will also be seen, that whereas in the wardrobe account the armorer's name is Giles, and the barber's, Walter, see notes to the Brabant roll, the foreign scribe of the account dubs them, Gilkin, and Woderkin. In following up his argument upon this subject, Mr. Lower speaks of a person being called Little Wilcock, as an instance of complete tautology. If, however, it is meant by this, as it seems to be, that a diminutive name was only applied to a diminutive in person, or only express such a one, I am sure he will find very many differ from him, as affection or familiarity was at least as likely to have originated its use. Thus, Peter de Gavestan would surely not be deprived of his knightly fame because he was called by Prince Edward, Perrault, Pierrot de Pierre. Thus also came Amiot from Amy, Lancelot from Lawrence, Gillet from Giles, and Kin has as much right to be so considered. But there being already these two diminutives in ordinary use as to names of persons, there surely was no occasion to apply to the same purpose a syllable which, with a mark of contraction, certainly had a direct meaning, and expressed a vocation, and which has very rarely been otherwise used in a diminutive sense. My object is not so much to advocate any particular solution as regards these names, as to submit evidence bearing upon the subject, with such explanations as have occurred to me. Joseph Burt. Joseph Burt. Return. In the report from the Select Committee of the House of Commons, on the post office in 1844, Sir F. Palgrave makes the following note on the word cocinus, which occurs in some documents supplied to the committee and printed in their appendix. The word cocinus, in the wardrobe accounts of the latter half of the 13th century, is used to signify a messenger, but in what the cocinus differed from the nuncius and the garcio, the other terms employed in their accounts to signify the bearers of letters or messages, does not appear. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The habit of this celebrated author, to annotate in the margins of books which he was reading, must be well known to many of the subscribers of N and Q. I have in my possession a curious little volume of notes, and see, in Mr. Coleridge's handwriting, of course very highly prized, from which extracts were made in volume 1, pages 274 to 5, and see, of Coleridge's literary remains, collected and edited by his nephew, H. N. Coleridge, E.S.Q., for volumes, 1836, Pickering. But, in addition to this volume, I have a few with S. T. Coleridge's pencilings in the margins. The following is selected from Dr. Parr's celebrated Spittle Sermon, and is appended to one of his, Dr. Parr's, notes, wherein he says, Upon the various effects of superstition, where it has spread widely and thriven long, we can reason from facts. But in the original frame of the human mind, and in the operation of all those usual causes which regulate our conduct or affect our happiness, there seems to be a most active, constant, and invincible principle of resistance to the approachments of atheism. All nature cries aloud against them, through all her works, not in speculation only, but in practice. Mr. Coleridge's annotation upon the foregoing opinion of the learned doctor is as follows, 
and I selected as a specimen of Coleridge's astonishing recollection of any opinions he had formerly promulgated, which might have called any laxity of principle, religious, moral, or political, into doubt, and of his extreme anxiety to refute or explain them. I never had even a doubt in my being concerning the supreme mind, but understand too sufficiently the difficulty of any intellectual demonstrations of his existence, and see too plainly how inevitably the principles of many pious men, Locke, Priestley, Hartley, even Archbishop King, would lead to atheism by fair production of consequences, not to feel in perfect charity with all good men, atheists or theists. And let me add, though I now seem to feel firm ground of reason under my belief in God, not gratefully to attribute my uniform past theism more to general feeling than to depth of understanding. Within this purpose I hope that, without offense, I may declare my conviction that in the French Revolution atheism was in effect not a cause, that the same wicked men, under other circumstances and fashions, would have done the same things as Anabaptists within Munster, or as inquisitors among the South American Indians, and that atheism from conviction, and as a ruling motive and impulse in which case only can it be fairly compared with superstition, is a quiescent state and per se. Harmless to all but the atheist himself. Rather is it that overwhelming preference of experimental philosophy, which, by smothering over more delicate perceptions, and debilitating often to impotence the faculty of going into ourselves, leads to atheism as a conscious creed, and in its extreme is atheism in its essence. This rather is, I should deem, the more perilous, and a plainer and better object for philosophical attack. Oh, bring back Jack the Giant Killer and the Arabian Nights to our children, and Plato and his followers to new men, and let us have chemistry as we have watchmakers or surgeons. I select purposely honorable and useful callings, as a division of human labor, as worthy profession for a few, not as a glittering master feature of the education of men, women, and children. S. T. C. J. M. G. Worcester. Folklore. The ancient custom of well-flowering. At Tissington, near Ashbourne, Derbyshire, annually, on Ascension Day, a beautiful ceremony called the well-flowering takes place, and in its psalms used by the Church of England are partially employed. It is a popular recognition of the value of those perpetual fountains which gush out from below the dry wolds and limestone hills, bearing life and beauty on their course, objects, remarks Professor Phillips in his admirable work on the rivers, mountains, and sea coasts of Yorkshire, recently published, on which rustic love and admiration may tastefully bestow the emblematic flowers and grateful songs, which constituted a pleasing form of popular worship in the earlier ages of the world. Perhaps some correspondence of N. and Q. may be enabled to mention other villages besides Tissington in which this innocent and pleasing custom is still observed. I am aware that there are many places, especially in the north of England, in which a rustic celebration takes place annually at wells sacred from olden time, but is not the well-flowering a distinct custom? W.M. Sidney Gibson W.M. Sidney Gibson Newcastle Devil's Marks and Swine We don't kill a pig every day, but we did a short time since, and after its hairs were scraped off, our attention was directed to six small rings, about the size of a pea, and in color as if burnt or branded, on the inside of each foreleg, and disposed curvilinearly. Our laborer informed us with great gravity, and evidently believed it, 
that these marks were caused by the pressure of the devil's fingers, when he entered the herd of swine which immediately ran violently into the sea. Dot. See Mark V. 11 to 15. Luke 8. 22 33. TB. TB. Festival of Baal. The late Lady Baird, of Frontower, in Perthshire, told me that, every year at Beltane, or the first of May, a number of men and women assembled at an ancient druidical circle of stones on her property, near Creef. They light a fire in the center. Each person puts a bit of oat cake into a shepherd's bonnet. They all sit down and draw blindfold a piece of cake from the bonnet. One piece has been previously blackened, and whoever gets that piece has to jump through the fire in the center of the circle and to pay a forfeit. This is, in fact, a part of the ancient worship of Baal, and the person on whom the lot fell was formerly burned as a sacrifice. Now, the passing through the fire represents that, and the payment of the forfeit redeems the victim. It is curious that staunch Presbyterians, as the people of that part of Perthshire now are, should unknowingly keep up the observance of a great heathen festival. L. M. M. R. Lord Monbado. In my copy of The Origin and Progress of Language, I have recorded a little new Capodeltomicrontomicronu of the author, which is now probably known to nobody but myself, and which you may perhaps think worth preservation. It was related to me some fifteen years ago, by a learned physician of this city, now deceased, who had it from Dr. James Gregory himself. New Capodeltomicrontomicronu. It appears that Lord Monbato, in spite of failing health and very advanced age, felt a wish to pay one more visit to the English metropolis, in the literary circles of which he was fond of mingling. That he had actually set out upon this formidable journey was known to Dr. Gregory, who, being a few hours afterwards at a short distance from Edinburgh, was a little surprised to meet his venerable friend returning homewards. He was on horseback, equipped in his usual traveling costume, cocked hat, scarlet roccolore, and jackboots, but looking extremely ill and depressed in spirits. What so soon returned? was Dr. Gregory's exclamation. Yes, said the old man. I feel myself quite unequal to the journey, and was just thinking of a passage in Horace, and adapting it to my own case. What, salsenesentum? said the doctor. No, replied his lordship. It is one not quite so hackneyed. He then repeated, with much emotion, the following lines from the second satire of the second book. Seu recreer volat tenuatum corpus, habique. Accident ani eti tractari malius itis. Imbecilla volat. This was the last time Dr. Gregory saw him out of doors, and he died not long after. W. L. Nichols. W. L. Nichols. Bath. S. T. Valentine. The subjoined cutting from an American newspaper, Worcester Democrat, February 3rd, will show the persistent vitality of popular follies, and at the same time serve to exhibit the peculiar literature of transatlantic advertisements. The great increase in marriages throughout Wayne Company during the past year is said to be occasioned by the superior excellence of the V-A-L-E-N-T-I-N-E-S Sold by George Howard Indeed so complete was his success in this line, that Cupid has again commissioned him as the great high priest of love, courtship, and marriage, and has supplied George with the most complete and perfect assortment of love's armor ever before offered to the citizens of Wayne County. 
During the past year the blind god has centered his thoughts on producing something in the line far surpassing anything he has heretofore issued. And it is with feelings of the greatest joy that he is able to announce that he has succeeded. Howard has got them. Howard has got them. To those susceptible persons whose hearts were captured during the past year, George refers, and advises others to call on them, and find them on their way rejoicing, shouting praises to the name of Howard. The blessings descend unto even the third and fourth generations, and it is probable that the business will go on increasing year upon year, until Howard's valentines will be a household word throughout the land. The children on the housetop will call to the passers-by, shouting, Howard's valentines! Howard's valentines! While the cry is echoed from the ground, and swelling over hill and vale reverberates the country through. Remember that the only regularly authorized dispenser of Cupid's goods is George Howard. George Howard. Two doors east of the American house, Worcester, oh. Orders by mail promptly attended to. Prices range from six cents to five dollars. Valentines. A large and splendid assortment of valentines, together with all the necessary fixings, for sale wholesale and retail, at the new column building. J. H. Baumgartner & Co. J. H. Baumgartner & Co. Worcester, February 3, 1853. Valentines. Behold St. Valentine's Day is coming, and all are seeking for messages to be dispatched under cover of this saint, to friend or foe. They are provided, of all kinds, styles, and varieties ready for use. The turtle dove kind, with its coo. Coo. The sensibly sentimental, the cutting, and severe, and in short everything that can be required. Just call on George Howard or J. H. Baumgartner and Company, and you can be suited to A.T. Valentine's. S.R.P. Minor Notes. His Excellency David Hartley. In the Gentleman's Magazine of January last, which I have only lately seen, there is inserted at page 8. A letter signed by Benjamin Franklin and John J. An address to His Excellency David Hartley, announcing the arrival in Europe of the ratification, by the Congress of the United States, of the definitive treaty of peace between Great Britain and the United States, and stating that they were ready to exchange the ratification with Mr. Hartley. In a note prefixed to this letter, the editor of the review states that Mr. Hartley then held some other diplomatic appointment from the United States. Now this is a mistake. Mr. Hartley was the British plenipotentiary who signed that treaty at Paris in September, 1783, with the American plenipotentiaries, and held no diplomatic appointment from the United States. He was therefore the proper person to exchange the ratifications with the American plenipotentiaries. The treaty is printed at full length in Chalmers' collection of treaties, together with Mr. Hartley's full power as the British plenipotentiary. J.B. The Life and Correspondence of S. T. Coleridge It is much to be regretted that no proper life of the noticeable man has yet appeared. There is no lack of reminiscences and recollections and conversations conveying distorted views of his life and character and exaggerated statements of his faults and failings, but his life has yet to be written. And now would be the time while some of his friends and contemporaries are still living, to do justice to his memory. Scott, Southey, Wordsworth have had their lives copiously illustrated, 
and even little Tommy Morris, Cosa Stipenda, to have ten volumes devoted to his life, whilst Coleridge, the myriad-minded, still waits for a biographer. And who would be so suitable as Derwent Coleridge to perform the office? J.M.B. An old riddle. I lately found the following mysterious verse upon a scrap of paper. It is of the time of Henry VIII. V.J. is come, V. is gun. Why thrist him beware all men? Vij wife vid shall meet wife vjh and vjh many. A thousand shall weep ad parabulum hank. If I should a say ya what it is I should have no thank. For he that any recketh where that he steppeth. He may lightly wade to depay. J.B.T. J.B.T. The word. Rather. The word rather is, as far as I know, if I am wrong, perhaps some of your correspondents will correct me. A solitary instance in our language of a comparative regularly formed from a positive which is now obsolete. In the cant. Tales v. 13029, we find the positive form. What aileth you so rathe for to arise? Where rathe means. Early soon. The earliest use of the comparative degree which I can find is in a piece of Anglo-Norman poetry preserved in Hicks's Thesaurus and given in Ellis's Specimens, Volume 1. Page 73. The crystal turneth into glass. In state that it rather was. Here we have the adverbial form. But in Chaucer's Troilus and Cresside 3. 1342. We find the adjectival form. But now to purpose of my rather speech. Where, according to the principle laid down by Dr. Latham, in his English language, page 262, second edit, we should, I suppose, pronounce it rather. This word has sustained various modifications of meaning, but they are in general easily deducible from the original signification, e.g. the phrase, I had rather, is easily explained, as far as the word rather is concerned, for that which we do more quickly, we do preferably. But in such expressions as, I am rather tired, equivalent to, I am a little tired, the explanation is not so obvious. In this case rather seems to mean, in greater degree than otherwise. Now, in such sentences as, I am glad you are come, the rather that I have work for you to do, rather seems to require the signification, in a greater degree. And may we not therefore explain the case in question as an elliptical expression for, rather than not? If so, is it not a solitary instance of such a construction in our language? Perhaps some of your correspondents can inform me at what period this use of the word was introduced for it is doubtless a modern innovation. Erica. Erica. Warwick. In Jesum Cruci Affixum. Affixus Ligno, Silvator, Criminum Mundi. Abstersit, Patience Jussa Cruentinesis. Aspicite ut languor decus, terpusker membra. In timus utcc prodat in or dolor. Auditus saxus, intellectusque ferrarum. Sensibus, inventos spiritus egerabit. Splendida pertenebras, subitos simulacra coruscant. Ardentesque micanper frida longa faces. Pro servus dominus moritor, pro santibus incens. Pro egrodo medicus, pro grege pastor obit. Pro populo nex mactator, pro melita ductor. Pro ceo per ipsi apifex, pro ce homini ipsi deus. Quid servus sons egrodus, quid grex populusque. Quid miles, quid opus, quid homo solvat? Amet. 
The present holy season has brought to my recollection the above beautiful lines, which were shown up some fifty years ago, for long copy, by a schoolfellow at Blundell School, Tiverton, and copied into my scrapbook. I think they are from the poemata of Jonas Audinus, but am not sure of it. Of this, however, I am sure they cannot be better made known to the world than by your excellent publication. William Collins. William Collins. Harlow. Queries. Corbett Peerage. Sarah, widow of Sir Vincent Corbett, Bart, was created, October 23, 1679, Viscountess Corbett, of Lynchlade, Company Bucks, for her natural life, and in the patent the preamble runs, that His Majesty Charles II, having taken into his royal consideration the great worth and merits of the trusty and well-beloved Sarah Lady Corbett, together with the faithful services of the late Sir Vincent Corbett, grants, and see. This evidently explains but little of the real reason both of the grant and its limitation. Lady Corbett had, besides four daughters, two sons then living, both in turn succeeded to the baronetcy. If the peerage were a reward for the services of the late Sir Vincent, those services, indeed, consisting in his having been completely routed by Sir Wabrerton at Nantwich, and afterwards with six troops of horse taken by surprise at Drayton, followed eventually by fine and sequestration, if, I say, for these services, nineteen years after the restoration, and certainly three after Sir Vincent's own death. The peerage were bestowed on his widow, then why was it limited for her life? Why was the unusual course taken of actually excluding the succession of the issue, who naturally should have been the recipients of the honor? We may conclude, therefore, the motive was personal favor. The great worth and merits of Lady Corbett in fact, as the patent first asserts, but then the query arises what these were. Tradition says Lady Corbett was a beauty and a favorite, the term may be understood, at a profligate court, and the peerage was the reward. But I cannot discover that this is more than tradition, and have never found any corroborative authority even among the many scandalous histories of the time, and I am most desirous to know if any such evidence can be given. It may be as well to add that in 1679 Lady Corbett was sixty-six years of age but we may presume she still had attractions, unless these were only her rank, from the fact that two months later she remarried Sir Charles Lee of Bill Leslie. Monson. Monson. Gatton Park. The Duke of Wellington and Marichal de France. The Revue Britannique, in its number for November, 1852, under the head of Nouvelles de Sciences, gives an account of the Duke of Wellington's funeral, and enumerates the titles of the illustrious deceased as proclaimed on the occasion by Garter King-at-Arms. The writer marks in italics those of Duc de Brunoy in France, Marichal de France, and Chevalier du Saint-Esprit, and then appends these remarks. Que le titre de Duc de Brunoy et été don réellement par Louis XVIII. Ah, Lord Wellington, c'est croyable. Le roi pavait crier de chien à ses sans blesser aucune susceptibilite militaire. Mais KC Prince Politique 8 P.U. Nama Marichal de France and General Etranger, Aquel I.L. Preferate Donner Le Cordon du Saint-Esprit, Plutot K. La Simple Croix de la Légion d'Honneur, Cuan Church en Vain Don La Lista Ordres Don't Lord Wellington Fut Decor, C'est Plus Difficile à Coir, A Moines K. Set Nomination N8 E.U. Lou Avec de Reserves E.T. De Conditions de Secret. Coorient Fort Pus Satisfait Cela Cuan Supposate, Sans Dut. Ambiture d'un parel honneur, puisqu'on. Le Louis Offrate. 
le nombre de marchaux fut limite et non augmente sous la restauration. Louis 18. Cray en Merkel, Illinois S. Vray. S.I. Lord Wellington fut nami marichal, C. Titer, restraint en qualification honorifique, comme celle de la vieuve de Moreau, any put jamais Louis confer aucun rang don l'armée française. J. Somme ici le roi d'armes gérateur de volwar bien prodwire le diplôme du noble duc. No man ever stood less in need of foreign orders than the Duke of Wellington, and no man ever had so many of them conferred upon him. As he was the last to assume a title that did not belong to him, so he would have been the first to repudiate any such pretension, if put forward by others on his behalf. Allow me therefore to ask, would it be inconsistent with what is due to the memory of the great duke? or with our sense of national honor, to undertake the task of clearing up the doubts thus thrown out respecting his claim to the title of Marichal de France? I believe these doubts have been repeated in other French journals, and that no reply has yet been made to them by the English press. Henry H. Breen. Henry H. Breen. St. Lucia. Minor Queries. Prophecy in Hovedon. I should be extremely obliged if any one of your numerous readers would give me the following information. In the account given by Hoveden, page 678, of the Frankfurt edition of Sir H. Seville's scriptors postbidam of the proceedings during the stay of Richard I. At Messina, that author says, Then was fulfilled the prophecy which was found written in ancient characters on tablets of stone, near a ville of the King of England, which is called here and which King Henry gave to William Fitz Stephen. Here the said William built a new house on a pinnacle, on which he placed the figure of a stag, which is supposed to have been done that the said prophecy might be fulfilled, which was to the following effect. One Thursday setches in here hurt your erit. Then Solon Engels in three be idled. That Han Sal into Erland Altolate way. That other into Puil mid prude by so. The thrid into Erhahen heard all recondrechigen. This is evidently full of typographical errors, and may be more correctly set forth in the English edition of 1596, which I have not at hand. I therefore wish for information on these points. 1. What is the correct version of this prophecy, and where may it be found? 2. What place is meant by? Here? I need hardly say that I have no difficulty as to the first two lines. When you see a heart rear directed in here, then shall England be divided into three parts. J. H. V. A skating problem. The motto of your paper is, When found, make a note of it. Here then is one for you. In several of my skating excursions I have observed, and noted it to others, that ice of just sufficient strength to bear any one in skates standing upon it, will instantly break if tried by the same person without having skates on. I don't know if any of your readers have made the same discovery. If so, can they explain the cause? If, on the contrary, any are incredulous enough to doubt the fact, I would recommend them to test the truth of my statement by a personal trial, before they pass a hasty judgment of the subject. A skater. A skater. Rap and rend for. In Dryden's prologue to the disappointment, or the mother in fashion, we find these lines. Our women batten well on their good nature. All they can rap and rend for the dear creature. All they can rap and run for is the more frequent colloquial version of this quaint phrase. In Chaucer's Chainin's Yemen's Tale, it stands thus. But was ten all that you may rape and rend, 
and to this last word Terwitt, in his glossary, gives. Rand, with a mark of interrogation, as doubtful of the meaning. Johnson gives it. Rap and rend, and quotes a line of Hudibras. All they could rap and rend and pilfer. And adds, more properly, rap and ran, sax to bind, and rana, Icelandic, to plunder. The question is, are we to accept this phrase in the sense it is commonly used, to seize and plunder? Or have later and better philologists mended the version? The context in Chaucer does not seem to warrant the interpretation given by Terwitt. The narrator is warning his hearers against the rogueries of alchemy. If that your iron cannot seen aright, Loketh that your mind lacka not his sight. For though ye loke never so broad and stare, ye shall not win a mite on that chaffer. But was ten all that ye may rape and ren. Withdraw the fire, lest it to fast bren. Meddleth no more with that art I mean. For if ye don, your thrift is gone full clean. Mmm. The wee brown hen. Can any of your correspondents oblige me with a copy of the old Jacobin song, the wee brown hen? It begins thus. I had a wee brown hen. And she had a wee brown tap. And she geed out in the morning. For to fill her crap. The violets were her covering. And everything was her care. And every day she laid TWA eggs. And Sundays she laid mare. Och. They micked hay letting her be. For every day she laid TWA eggs. And Sundays she laid three. The words are very old, and conveyed a certain religious and political allusion. I know the tune of it, and I shall take it as a favor to be furnished with a correct version of the songs. Fras. Crossley. Fras. Crossley. Deprived Bishops of Scotland, 1638. Neither Bishop Keith, with all his industry in his hist. Cattle. Of the Scottish Bishops nor subsequent ecclesiastical writers on the same subject, appear to have been able to mention the period of the deaths of nearly all those prelates deprived of their sees in 1638. The researches of late years may, perhaps, have been more successful, and in that hope I now venture to inquire when and where the lives of the following Scottish bishops came to a close. 1. David Lindsay, Bishop of Edinburgh. 2. Alex. Lindsay, Bishop of Dunkeld. 3. Adam Ballenden, Bishop of Aberdeen. 4. John Guthrie, Bishop of Moray. 5. James Fairley, Bishop of Argyle. 6. Neil Campbell, Bishop of the Isles 7. John Abernethy, Bishop of Caithness. 8. Geo Graham, Bishop of Orkney. And 9. Robert Barron, Bishop elect of Orkney, 1638. The Archbishops of St. Andrew in Glasgow, and Bishops of Brechin, Dunblane, Ross, and Galloway are slightly noticed, though even in these few there are discrepancies, both as to year and place of demise, which might be corrected. The later ecclesiastical records of Scotland are also exceedingly scanty, for Mr. Percival, with all his acumen and research, in his Apology for the Doctrine of Apostolical Succession, 2nd Edit, Appendix, pages 250-3 acknowledges with regret his inability to give more particulars of the consecrations in Scotland between 1662 and 1688. For the column with names of consecrators is without dates of consecrations during that period, and is, with very few exceptions, a blank. In continuation of this topic, may I inquire when and where the two following bishops, 
deprived in 1690, died, 1. John Hamilton, Bishop of Dunkeld and 2. Archibald Graham, Bishop of the Isles The notices given by Bishop Keith, of the other deprived Scottish bishops, are also exceedingly brief and meager, nor has Mr. Lawson, hist. Scott. Epis. C.H. added much. A.S.A. Was a rabid. Passage in Carlyle. Carlyle, French Revolution, Volume 1. In his description of the horrors attendant on the deathbed of Louis XV, mentions the ghosts of the men, who sank shamefully on so many battlefields from Rosbach to Quebec, that thy harlot might take revenge for an epigram. Who was the harlot, and what the epigram? Ficulness. Ficulness. Madagascar poetry. Can any of the readers of N and Q throw any light upon the origin of the following lines? I found them among family papers, written about the year 1805, where they are described as the invocation of Madagascarian spirit, by which, I imagine, we are to infer that they are a translation of some native lay from the island of Madagascar. Spirit that art flown away. Listen to our artless lay. Teach us, spirit, to do well. Teach us, spirit, to excel. Stoop, O spirit, and be kind, teaching those you left behind. Listen to our artless lay. Spirit that art flown away. C.S. Inc. From the following lines by Whitehead, which I find in my notebook, I am induced to ask who was the inventor of ink. Hard that his name it should not save. Who first poured forth the sable flood? Philip S. King. Philip S. King. Hamilton Queries, Volume 6, page 429. Lord Braybook says, in writing of Lord Spencer Hamilton, that he was a younger son of James, third Duke of Hamilton. I find, on referring to a peerage, date about 1720, I cannot quote it more particularly, as it has no title page, that the third inheritor of the dukedom of Hamilton was an daughter of the first and niece of the second Duke of Hamilton, and that she married William, Earl of Selkirk, eldest son of the Marquis of Douglas. The date would better accord with Lord Spencer's being a son of James, fifth Duke of Hamilton. Was it not so? Lord Braybook. Sir William Hamilton. Who was the first wife of Sir W. Hamilton, the celebrated ambassador, and when did he marry her? Who was the second, who has attained such notoriety in connection with Nelson's name, and when and where were they married? Was single-speech Hamilton a member of the ducal family of Hamilton? If so, his lineage from that house? T.B. T.B. Derivation of windfall. Arvine, in his Cyclopedia, gives the following plausible reason for the origin of this term, now in such common use. Query, is he correct? Some of the nobility of England, by the tenure of their estates, were forbidden felling any trees in the forests upon them, the timber being reserved for the use of the Royal Navy. Such trees as fell without cutting were the property of the occupant. A tornado was therefore a perfect godsend, in every sense of the word, to those who had occupancy of extensive forests, and the windfall was sometimes of very great value. W. W. Malta. Do the sun's rays put out the fire? There is a current and notorious idea that the admission of the sunlight into a room puts the fire out, and, after making every deduction for an apparent effect in this matter, I confess I am disposed to think that the notion is not an erroneous one. 
Can any of your correspondents account for it on philosophical principles, or disprove it experimentally? C. W. B. Denmark and Slavery Dr. Madden, in a twelve-months residence in the West Indies, 1834, says, in allusion to a remark of Mr. Bridges, to the effect that England was the last European power to enter into the slave trade, and the first to abandon it. This is inaccurate. To the honor of Denmark be it spoken, the slave trade was abolished by her five years before England performed that act of tardy justice to humanity. Volume 2. Page 128. The object of the present communication is either to question nor disparage the merit here claimed for Denmark, in reference to the slave trade. It concerns the abolition of slavery itself by that power. I shall therefore be obliged to any reader of N. and Q., who will inform me when freedom was granted to the Negroes in the Danish island of St. Thomas, in the same manner as to those of the British West Indian colonies in 1838, and also in what work I can find any detailed account of such act of manumission? L. L. Spontaneous combustion. Is there such a thing as spontaneous combustion? H. A. B. Bucks, Most Ancient and Honorable Society of a candid inquiry into the principles and practices of this society, with its history, rules, and songs, was published in 1770. It appeared that there were at that time thirteen lodges of the society in London, and a few in other places. Do any lodges of this society still exist? Did they issue any medals? Do they, or did they, wear any badges? Who wore them, officers only, or all members? How many varieties were there? and of what sizes. The book I have, and two varieties of what I suppose may have been worn as badges. E.D.W. Hawkins. E.D.W. Hawkins. Lines quoted by Charles Lamb. There are some lines quoted by Charles Lamb in one of the essays of Elia. I am very anxious to know whose they are. Bind me, you woodbinds, in your twines. Curl me about, ye gaddying vines. And oh! So close your circles lace, that I may never leave this place, but lest your fetters prove too weak, ere I their silken bondage break. Do you, O briars, chain me too, and courteous brambles nail me through? L. M. M. R. Descendants of Dr. Bill. Are there any records extant of the family or descendants of Dr. Bill, whose name is first on the list of those who drew up the prayer book, Tempest Edward VI? He was also Lord Almoner to Queen Elizabeth. Dr. Bill's only daughter and heiress, Mary Bill, was married to Sir Francis Samwell. Had she any family? And did they assume the name of Bill? Did a branch of the family settle in Staffordshire, and where? A. R. M. The Rebellious Prayer. Can any of your readers inform me whether some stanzas entitled The Rebellious Prayer have ever yet appeared in print, and if so, in what collection of poems they are to be met with. The opening lines are as follows. It was a darkened chamber, where was heard. The whispered voice, hushed step, and stifled sounds, which herald the deep quietness of death. And see. They describe the anxious watchings of a wife at the sick couch of her husband. In her agony she prays that his life may be spared, at whatever cost. Her prayer is granted, and her husband is restored but bereft of reason. J.A. Ravenshaw and his works. Can any of your readers give me information, or refer me to any works, of John Ravenshaw, 
who was ejected from Holm Chapel under the Act of Uniformity. He is described by Calamy as having been a good scholar and possessing a taste for poetry. B. Return. Or Church Home in Cheshire. Minor Queries with Answers. Yolande de Drew, Volume 6, pages 150. 209, J. Y. has given this queen's second marriage, but not the date or the names of her issue. I am aware that her husband Arthur too. Not I, was Duke of Britannia, 1305-12, and that her only son John III, born 1293, succeeded, but the names and marriages of her five daughters still remain unnoticed, as also any notices of her father the Count of Drew, or of her mother. A.S.A. Was a rabid. The names of the five daughters of this lady and their alliances are as follow. 1. Johanna, born 1294, married to Robert of Flanders, Lord of Castle. 2. Beatrix, born 1295, married Guido X, Baron of Laval, in 1315, died 1384. 3. Elisa, born 1297, married 1320, Bertrand VI, Count of Vendosum, died 1377. 4. Bianca, died an infant. 5. Mary, born 1302, became a nun, and died 1371. The father of Yolande de Drew was Robert IV, Count of Drew, Brain, Montfort, and Elamauri, and died November 14, 1282. Her mother was Beatrix, daughter and heiress of John Count of Montfort, Elamauri, and Lord of Rockefort, married in 1260. This is given on the authority of Anderson's Royal Genealogies. Table 378 and p. 620. Bishop Francis Turner. He left a manuscript life of Nicholas Ferrer of Little Gidding, which formed the basis of Dr. Peckard's Life of Ferrer, reprinted in Wordsworth's Ecclesiastical Biography. Where can this manuscript be found? Are there any literary remains of the bishop to be met with anywhere? J. 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 We believe all that is known of Bishop Turner's M.S. Life of Nicholas Ferrer is that it was in the custody of the editor of the Christian magazine in 1761. Foster the Essayist, Lectures, Volume 2, page 504, edit. 1848 says, A long and well-written account of Ferrer was drawn up by a Dr. Turner, Bishop of Ely, and left by him in manuscript. It remained in the hands of the persons to whom his papers descended, till it was communicated to the conductors of a miscellany called the Christian Magazine, in a volume of which for the year 1761, this curious memoir was lately pointed out to me. Goff, in his British Topography, Volume 2, p. 299, asterisk, furnishes a few other particulars. The papers of Bishop Turner, in the year 1761, appear to have been in the hands of Dr. Dodd, who printed some of them in the Christian Magazine for that year. In particular, the life of Mr. Nicholas Farrer was abridged, and published at page 356. In the introduction, the editor says, As the life is rather too long for our pamphlet, even divided, we have taken the liberty to abridge some particulars in the bishop's account, and now and then to alter a phrase or two in his language, which through length of time is in some places rather become obsolete. From this passage it will appear that it was published in the worst manner it could be. Our correspondent will find much curious matter respecting the biographies of Nicholas Ferrer in our second volume, pages 119, 407, 444, 485, 
among the added. Mrs. Number 5540, F. 53, in the British Museum, is a letter of Bishop Turner's address to Mr. Reading, and read at the trial of Lord Preston, 1691. Raleigh's History What is the story of Raleigh's burning the second volume of his history? Recknack. Recknack. The story is this. A few days previously to his death, Raleigh sent for Walter B., who printed his history, and asking him how the work had sold, received for answer. So slowly that it had undone him. Upon which Sir Walter brought from his desk a continuation of the work to his own time, and throwing it into the fire, said to B., The second volume shall undo no more. This ungrateful world is unworthy of it. When Stanley's English Worthies, page 256, there is, however, no satisfactory authority for the truth of this anecdote, and it has been rejected by Arthur Cayley and his other biographers. Replies Epitaphs Volume 7, page 178 The following is a real epitaph. It was written by Dr. Greenwood on his wife, who died in childbed, and it is in all probability still to be seen, where it was originally set up, in Solihull Churchyard, Warwickshire. The most amusing point in it is that the author seriously intended the lines to rhyme. There is wonderful merit in the couplet where he celebrates her courage and magnanimity in preferring him to a lord or judge, which heroic action, joined to all the rest, made her to be esteemed the phoenix of her sex. Go, cruel death, thou hast cut down the fairest greenwood in all this kingdom. Her virtues and her good qualities were such that surely she deserved a lord or judge. But her piety and great humility made her prefer me, a doctor in divinity, which heroic action, joined to all the rest, made her to be esteemed the phoenix of her sex, and like that bird a young she did create, to comfort those her loss had made disconsolate. My grief for her was so sore, that I can only utter two lines more, for this and all other good woman's sake. Never let blisters be applied to a lying in woman's back. The advice contained in the last couplet is sound. F.D. Pershore. Your correspondent Erica gives us some quotations and epitaphs, in which the metaphor of an inn is applied both to life and death. I find the former of these ideas embodied in the following distich, copied from a tombstone at Langollen in North Wales, a village much frequented not only by tourists, but by holiday-makers from all the surrounding districts, for whose especial benefit I conceive the epitaph to have been written. Erica. Our life is but a summer's day. Some only breakfast, and away. Others to dinner stay, and are full-fed. The oldest man but sups, and goes to bed. Large his account, who lingers out the day. Who goes the soonest, has the least to pay. George S. Masters. George S. Masters. Welsh Hampton, Salop. The bathos can no further go. Volume 7, page 5. Inscription copied, N.O.V. 21, 1833, from a tombstone to a fisherman in Bathford churchyard. He drags no more, his nets reclined, and all his tackle left behind. His anchors cast within the veil. No storms tempestious him assail. In peace he rests and Jesus plain. Reader I hear lies, an honest man. A husband, father, friend, compeer. To all, who knew him, truly dear. Search the great globe, 
how few, alas, are worthy now to take his place. B. H. 1805. Some rural wag had substituted with his pencil three words for the last three, which certainly rhymed better with alas. E. D. Allow me to send you one of much merit, founded upon the same metaphor as those inserted at the page above quoted. Life's like an inn where travelers stay. Some only breakfast and away. Others to dinner stay and are full fed. The oldest man but sups and goes to bed. Hard is his lot who lingers out the day. Who goes the soonest has the least to pay. E.D.W. Hawkins. E.D.W. Hawkins. Throwing old shoes for luck. Volume 2. Page 196. Volume 5. Page 143. Volume 7. Page 182. Some light may perhaps be thrown on this mysterious custom by the following quotation from the Refutation de Opinions de Jean Weir, by Bodin, the celebrated French jurisconsult, and author of the De Menomini de Sortius, Paris, 1586, to the quarto edition of which the refutation is generally found attached. It may be necessary to observe, for the benefit of those unacquainted with demoniacal lore, that Weir, though a pupil of Cornelius Agrippa, and what would be nowadays termed exceedingly superstitious, was far in advance of his age, and the first to assert that some, at least, of the many persons who were then burned for sorcery were merely hypochondriacs and lunatics, fitter subjects for the care of the physician than the brand of the executioner. This heterodox opinion brought upon him a crowd of antagonistic replies, and amongst them the refutation of Bowden. During a cursory examination of Weir's voluminous demonological works, De Lamius Liber, Item de Commentatius Jejuniis, De Prestigius Demonum, Et Incantationibus A.C. Beneficius, Basil, 1583, I have not met with the passage underneath referred to by Bowden, but, no doubt, if time permitted, a closer search would discover it. Ilse mock aussi dune sorcière, a cassavon commanda de garder bien ses vieux souliers, pour un preservatif, et contre charme contre les autres sorties. Jdykc conciled the satan a double sense, les souliers significant les peches, comme estes toujours trainés par les orgers. Et quand du dist a moise et a hosway, astes souliers si lu es per, et saint, il entendoit. Come dict philin Hebrew, chuayel fo bien neto your son aim de peches, pour contemplar et lauardia. Mais pour converser avec satan, Illinois fo ester suil, et plonge en perpetuel impietes et mecansites, allor satan assistera a ses bones servitors. Et qua ne ux sens literal, nous avons dict case satan fate si chuayel put, pour distorner les homes de la fiancée de dieu aux creatures. Que est la vraie définition de l'idolatry, que les theologians ont bailey, talmud que cacroira, que scs vieux souliers, ou les belays, et autres babios chuayel port, le put garder de mal, Illinois est perpetuel idolatry. W. Pinkerton. W. Pinkerton. Ham. It will, I fear, be difficult to discover a satisfactory answer to Lord Braybrook's questions on these two points. They cannot certainly be traceable to a pagan origin, for Cupid is always portrayed barefooted, and there is not, I believe, a single statue to be found of a sandaled Venus. I can certainly direct his lordship to one author, a Christian author, S. T. Gregory of Tours, 
who refers to a curious practice, and seemingly one well recognized, of lovers presenting shoes, as they now do bouquets, to the objects of their affection. Lord Braybrooks. Kamku, ute tate huic convenit, amori se polari priesterit a fabiblum, et cum poculus frequentibus idium calciamenta deferet. Gregor. Turin. Ex Vitus Patrum, Volume 2. Page 449. See also same page, Note 3. W. B. McCabe. W. B. McCabe. Allow me to inform Lord Braybrook that the custom of throwing a shoe, taken from the left foot, after persons for good luck, has been practiced in Norfolk from time immemorial, not only at weddings, but on all occasions where good luck is required. Some forty years ago a cattle dealer desired his wife to troll her left shoe arter him, when he started for Norwich to buy a lottery ticket. As he drove off on his errand, he looked round to see if she performed the charm, and consequently he received the shoe in his face, with such force as to black his eyes. He went and bought his ticket, which turned up a prize of six hundred L, and his son has assured me that his father always attributed his luck to the extra dose of shoe which he got. Lord Braybrook. EGR. The custom of throwing an old shoe after a person departing from home, as a mode of wishing him good luck and prosperity in his undertaking, is not confined to Scotland and the northern counties, nor to weddings. It prevails more or less, I believe, throughout the kingdom. I have seen it in Cheshire, and frequently in towns upon the seacoast. I once received one upon my shoulder, at Swansea, which was intended for a young sailor leaving his home to embark upon a trading voyage. E.D.W. Hawkins. E.D.W. Hawkins. Owen G.L.Y.N.D.W.R. Owen A.P. Griffith Viken, Lord of G.L.Y.N.D.W.R.D.W.I. Volume 7, page 205. The arms referred to by Mr. Woodward are those on the great seal and privy seal of the irregular and wild Glendower. As Prince of Wales, attached to two documents deposited in the Hotel Sabise, at Paris, in the Carton's I, 623, and I, 392, relating, it is supposed, to the furnishing of troops to the Welsh Prince by Charles VI, King of France. Casts of these seals were taken by the indefatigable Mr. Doubleday, to whom the sealed department of the British Museum, over which he presides, is so much indebted and impressions were exhibited by Sir Henry Ellis at a meeting of the Society of Antiquaries, on the 12th of December, 1833. Engravings of them, accompanied by the following notice, were communicated by Sir Henry to the Archaeologia, and will be found in that publication, Volume 25, Plate 70, Figure 2 and 3, page 616, and Ibid pages 619, 620. Mr. Woodward. The great seal has an obverse and reverse. On the obverse Owen is represented, with a bifid beard, very similar to Rich. 2. Seated under a canopy of gothic tracery, the half-body of a wolf forming the arms of his chair on each side, the background is ornamented with a mantle of lions, held up by angels. At his feet are two lions. A scepter is in his right hand, but he has no crown. The inscription, Owenus Princeps Wally, on the reverse of the great seal Owen is represented on horseback, in armor, in his right hand, which is extended, he holds a sword, and with his left his shield, charged with, quarterly, for lions rampant, 
a drapery, probably a kerchief de plaisance, or handkerchief won at a tournament, pendant from his right wrist. Lions rampant also appear upon the mantle of the horse. On his helmet, as well as on his horse's head, is the Welsh dragon, Passant. The area of the seal is diapered with roses. The inscription on this side seems to fill the gap upon the obverse Owenus de Grazia, Wally. Owenus, Princeps Wally. Owenus de Grazia, Wally. The privy seal represents the four lions rampant towards the spectator's left, on a shield, surmounted by an open coronet, crown, the dragon of Wales, as a supporter, on the dexter side, on the sinister, a lion. The inscription seems to have been Sigillum Owini Principis Wally. No impression of this seal is probably now to be found either in Wales or England. Its workmanship shows that Owen Gia Wyndwr possessed a taste for art beyond the types of the seals of his predecessors. Principis Wally. The dragon is a favorite figure with Cambrian bards, and not to multiply instances, the following lines may be cited from the poem of the Hurla's Horn by Owen Syphiliac, Prince of Powys Wenwenwen, Mithravel's lord, the poet, and the prince. Father of Gwenwenwen, Prince of Powys Wenwenwen, the Gwenwen of Sir Walter Scott's betrothed, a DYKWCI roof at Wairilin, Gwenna GWYDYR Golia YNEIGYLCHYN, Dragon Awisli Awistil Turvin, Dragon Owen Hale O Hill KYNDYN. Dragon I W D Kren A C New D Y C Charwyan Cat. Sivlevan Argrat C Y M Y W Erlin. My Virian Archaeology of Wales, London. 1801 8 Volume 1, page 265. And there to Griffide, the Crimson Lance Foe. Wine with pellucid glass around it. The Dragon of Arvsley, Safeguard of the Borders. The Dragon of Owen, the generous of the race of CYNVYN. A dragon from his beginning, and never scared by a conflict. Of triumphant slaughter, or afflicting chase. Gray, whose bard indicates the inspiration with which he had seized the poetry and traditions of the Simri, thus refers to the red dragon as the cognizance of the Welsh monarchs, in his triumphs of Owen, A.P. Griffith, Prince of North Wales. Dauntless, on his native sands. The dragon, son of Mona, stands, in glittering arms and glory dressed. High he rears his ruby crest. The dragon and lion have been attributed to the Welsh monarchs, as insignia, from an early period, and the former is ascribed, traditionally, to the great Cadwallader. In the Archaeologia, Volume 20, page 579, Plate 29, page 578 are descriptions of engravings of the impressions of two seals appendant to charters of Edward, son of Edward IV, and Arthur, son of Henry VII, as princes of Wales, the obverse of each bearing three lions and pale passant, regardant, having their tails between their legs, reflected upon their backs, upon a shield surmounted by a cap of maintenance. Prince Edward's shield has on each side a lion as a supporter, holding single feathers, with the motto, Itch dying on Prince Arthur's seal, the feathers are supported by dragons. Thomas William King, Rouge Dragon, in a letter to Sir Samuel Merrick, dated September 4, 1841, published in the Archaeologia, Volume 29, page 408, Appendix, regards the lions on these shields as to the ensigns attributed at the period of the seals to certain Welsh princes, and the dragon as the badge of Cadwallader. 
in the MS. For reference to which I am indebted to the courtesy of Sir Frederick Madden, which was recently sold at Sotheby's, containing translations by Johannes Boreas, presented to Henry, Prince of Wales, son of Henry VII. About 1505, there is a beautiful illumination containing the arms of that prince, quarterly France and England, with the red dragon as the dexter, and the greyhound of the house of York as the sinister, supporter. The red fiery drago beaten yupo white and green sarsnet was the charge of a standard offered by Henry VII. At St. Paul's, on his entry into London after his victory at Bosworth Field, and this standard was represented on the corner of his tomb, held by an angel, Wilmot's Regal Heraldry, 4 to London, 1821, page 57. The red dragon rampant was assumed as a supporter by Henry VII. An indication of his Welsh descent, and was born as a supporter, either on the dexter or sinister side of the shield, by all the other English monarchs of the House of Tudor, with the exception of Queen Mary, who substituted for it an eagle, and among the badges attributed to our present sovereign is, in respect of Wales, a dragon passant, wings elevated goo, upon a mount vert. It may be assumed, with little doubt, that the color of the dragon borne by Owen Glyndwr was rouge, and although the color of the other supporter of his shield, the lion, is not susceptible of such positive inference, it may be conjectured to have been sable, the color of the lion, the principal charge on his hereditary shield. To Mr. Woodward's immediate query as to the blazon, color of the field and charges, of the arms on these seals, I can afford no direct answer, never having met with any trace of these arms in the extensive collections of Welsh mises to which I have had access. These ensigns may have been adopted by Owen as arms of dominion, as those of Ireland by the English sovereigns, on his assumption of the Principality of Wales, a suggestion countenanced, if not established, by four lions quarterly. Quarterly gules and ore for lions rampant, counterchanged. Being assigned to Griffith A. P. Llewellyn, killed April, 28 Hen. 3. 1244, in attempting to escape from the tower, eldest son of Llewellyn A. P. Ireworth, Prince of Wales, dead November 31, 25 Hen. 3. 1240, father of the ill-fated and gallant Llewellyn A. P. Griffith, last sovereign of Wales, slain at Bilth, December 10, 8 edition I, 1282. Further confirmation is, perhaps, afforded to this suggestion by Owen having, it is understood, vindicated his assumption of the Cambrian throne as heir of the three sovereign dynasties of North Wales, South Wales, and powers respectively, of the last, as male representative, through the lords of Bromfield, of Maddock A.P. Meredith, the last monarch of that principality, and of the two former as their heir-general. In respect of his mother, Eleanor, sister of Owen, A.P. Thomas A.P. Llewellyn, Lord, with his paternal uncle, Owen A.P. Llewellyn A.P. Owen, of the Comet, Hundred, of Iscode, September 20, 1344, representative paternally of the sovereigns of South Wales, and by female descent, of those of North Wales, through Griffith A.P. Llewellyn above named. Mr. Woodward's. The hereditary arms of Owen's paternal line, the lords of GLYNDWRDWY are those of his ancestor, Griffith Mailer A.P. Maddock, of Dinas Bran, Lord of Bromfield, Yale, Chirk, G.L.Y.N.D.W.R.D.W.Y., and C., who died A.D. 1191, viz. Polly of Aid Argent and Gules, over all a lion rampant sable. Thus differenced, 
apparently from the Black Lion of Powys, Argent a lion rampant sable, the royal ensigns of his father, Madoc A.P. Meredith, last sovereign prince of Powys, who died at Winchester in 1160. I am unable to refer to any seal of the lords of GLYNDWRDWY, or of the lords of Bromfield, bearing the family arms of their line, but they are thus given invariably by the Cambrian heralds, and so far are susceptible of proof by the most authentic MS, authorities of the principality. It is, however, remarkable that the heraldic visitations of Wales of Lewis DWNN, appointed in 1580 Deputy Herald for All Wales, by Robert Cook Clarences, and William Flower Norroy King at Arms, published in 1846 by the Welsh Mrs. Society, contain no pedigree of the house of GLYNDWRDWI. Of the descendants, if any, of Owen GLYNDWR himself, beyond his children, I am not aware that there is any authentic pedigree or other satisfactory proof, and there seems to be presumptive evidence that in 12 Henry VI, 1433, a period so recent as nineteen years from the last date, February 19th, 1 Henry V, 1414, on which Owen is ascertained to have been alive, Rymer's Fodera 9, page 330. His issue was limited to a daughter and heir, Alice, wife of Sir John Scudamore, knight, described in a petition of John, Earl of Somerset, to whom Owen's domains, on his attainder, had been granted by his brother, Henry IV, as A.D. On John Skydmore, Chevalier, E.T. Alice S.A. Femme, Pretendants La Dite Alice Etri File E.T. Aero Did Owen, G.L.Y.N.D.W.R. Rot. Parliament 12 Hen. 6. I have not found evidence to show that there were any children of Alice's marriage with Scudamore, and assuming the failure of her issue, and also the extinction of Owen's other offspring, the representation of the three dynasties. The long line of our old royalty, reverted to that of his only brother, Tudor A.P. Griffith Viking, a witness, as Tudor de Glindor, in the Scrope and Grosvenor Controversy, September 3, 1386, and then twenty-four years and upwards, who is stated to have been killed under Owen's banner at the Battle of Mynyddpwlomelon, near Grossmont, Monmouthshire, fought March 11, 1405. Tudor's daughter and heir, Lowry, Lady, of Gwydawern in Edernion. Una Baron. De Edernion. Became the wife of Griffith A.P. Einion of Corsagetal, living 1400 and 1415, and from this marriage descend the eminent Merionethshire house of Corsagetal, represented by the co-heirs of the late Sir Thomas Mostyn, Bart, of Mostyn and Corsagetal, namely, his nephew, the Honorable Edward Mostyn Lloyd Mostyn, of Mostyn and Corsagetal. M.P., Lord Lieutenant of Merionethshire, and Sir Thomas's sister, Anna Maria, Lady Vaughan, mother of Sir Robert Williams Vaughan, Bart, of Nano, and its derivative branches, the Yales of Plaswyan Yale, Company Denby, and the Rogers Winds of Brintanger in the same county, the former represented by the Lloyds of Plymouth, and the latter by the Hughes of Gorkles and Edernian, Lords of Kimmerwyan and Edernian, Company Marioneth, and Barons of Edernian. These families, co-representatives of the three Cambrian dynasties, all quarter, with the arms of South Wales and North Wales, the ensigns I have referred to as the hereditary bearings of the lords of GLYNDWRDWI. Independently of the adoption of these ensigns in the Welsh Mises in the British Museum, College of Heralds, 
and other depositories, it may be mentioned that they are quartered in an ancient shield of the Vons of Corsagetal, suspended in the Hall of Corsagetal, one of the finest and most picturesque mansions in the Principality, and that they appear in the splendid emblazoned genealogy of the House of Gwerkles. Compiled in 1650 by Robert Vaughan, Yeskew, of Hangert, the Camden, and Dugdale. United of Wales. The arms in question are ascribed to the line of Bromfield and GLYNDWRDWY, and, as quarterings to the families just named by Mr. Burke's well-known armory, the first, and indeed, only work, in conjunction with the Welsh genealogies in that gentleman's peerage and baronetage, and landed gentry, affording satisfactory, or any approach to systematic and complete. Treatment of Cambrian heraldry and family history. Mr. Charles Knight also, highly and justly estimated, no less for a refined appreciation of our historic archaeology, than for careful research, adopts these arms as the escutcheon of Owen in the beautiful artistic designs which adorn and illustrate the first part of the drama of King Henry IV. In his pictorial edition of Shakespeare. Histories, Volume 1. Page 170. The shield of the lords of GLYNDWRDWY, as marshaled by Welsh heralds, displays quarterly the arms assigned to their direct paternal ancestors, as successively adopted previous to the period when armorial bearings became hereditary. Thus marshaled, the paternal arms of Owen GLYNDWR are as follows, first and fourth. Polly of eight, argent and gules, over all a lion rampant sable. For Griffith Mailer, Lord of Bromfield, son of Maddock A.P. Meredith, Prince of Powysfadog, second. Argent, a lion rampant sable, the black lion of Powys. For Maddock, Prince of Powysfadog, son of Meredith, Prince of Powys, son of Bledon, King of Powys, third. Or a lion rampant gules. For Bledon A.P. Cyfnfyn, King of Powys. None of these ensigns is referable to a period anterior to that within which armorial bearings are attributed to the Anglo-Norman monarchs. The lion rampant is common to all branches of the line of Powys, but the bearing peculiar to its last monarch, Maddock A.P. Meredith. The black lion of Powys, without a difference, has been transmitted exclusively to the Huses, baronial lords of Kimmerwyany Dernian, and the other descendants of Owen Brogenton, lord of Edernian younger son of Maddock, of whom, with the exception of the family just named, it is presumed there is no existing male branch. The same arms were borne by Ireworth Gotch, lord of Mocknant, also a younger son of Maddock, but they are now only borne subordinately in the second quarter by that chief's descendant, Sir John Roger Canaston of Hardwick, Bart, and by the other branches of the Canastons, the first quarter having been yielded to the arms of Touche, Lord Audley, assumed by Sir Roger Canaston of Hordley, Knight. After the Battle of Blore in 1459, at which Lord Audley is said to have fallen by the hand of Sir Roger. As already stated, Griffith Mailer, Maddox's eldest son, bore the black lion differenced, as did also the twin sons of the latter, viz. Sinric Ethel, Lord of Egwys Egil, ancestor of the distinguished line of Davies of Gwysony in Flintshire, whose ensigns were Gules on a bend argent, a lion passant sable. An Ionian Ethel, progenitor of the Edwardses of Nestrange, and of other North Wallian families, who bore. Party profess, sable and argent, a lion rampant counterchanged. The ancestor of the Vaughans of Nanaw Barts, Cadwan, designated by Camden. The renowned Briton, younger son of Blyddyn, king of Powys, 
sometime associated in the sovereignty with his elder brother Meredith, exhibited, it is stated, on his banner an azure lion on a golden ground, ensigns transmitted to the early lords of Nanaw and their descendants, with the exception, probably the only one, of the Vaughns of Wingreg and Hangert, represented paternally by the Vaughns of Nanaw and Hangert, baronets, who, transferring these arms to the second quarter, bear in the first, quarterly, or in gules, for lions rampant, counterchanged. The Wenwenwen branch of the dynasty of Powis continued, or at a later period resumed, the red lion rampant on a gold ground, ascribed to be LYDDYNAPCYNFYN, and it is not a little interesting that recently a beautiful silver seal, in perfect preservation, of Hoys Gadarn, heiress of that princely line, who by the gift of Edward II, became the wife of John de Charlton, was found near Oswestry, representing her standing, holding two shields, the one in her right hand charged with her own arms, the lion rampant, that in the left with those of Charlton, two lions passant. The legend around the seal is, S. Horsi Dieni de Kivialoc. S. Horsi Dieni de Kivialoc. The original seal is now in the Museum of Chester, and was exhibited, I believe, by the honorary curator, the Rev. William Massey, at a recent meeting of the Society of Antiquaries. Of this venerable relic I possess an impression in wax, and of the great and privy seals of Owen GLYNDWR, beautiful casts in sulfur, and I shall have pleasure in leaving them with the editor of N and Q, for the inspection of Mr. Woodward, should that gentleman desire it. Mr. Woodward. John A. P. William A. P. John. John A. P. William A. P. John. Inner Temple. March 7, 1853. Return. This supporter, and the crest, as also the supporter which I shall mention presently, attached to the respective shields of Arthur Prince of Wales, and of Henry Prince of Wales, sons of Henry VII, is in fact a wyvern, having, like the dragon, a tail resembling that of a snake, but differing from the dragon in the omission of the two hind legs. The supporter in respect of Wales, afterwards alluded to as assumed by the English monarchs of the House of Tudor, was a dragon strictly. Return. Mithravel, in the Vale of Mephod in Montgomeryshire, the palace of the sovereigns of Powys, erected by Rodrimar, King of Wales. Where warm way, VWRNWY, rolls its waters underneath. Ancient Mithravel's venerable walls. Sivaliac's princely and paternal seat. Southey's Matic. Return. Cynfwyan, father of Bledon, king of Powys, by his consort Angharad, queen of Powys, derived from Mervyn, king of Powys, third son of Rodrimar, the great, king of all Wales, progenitor of the three dynasties of North Wales, South Wales, and Powys. Chifu dnoi. E de nostri avi illustri il sepo vecchio. Return. His, Owen glyndwrs. Father's name was Giawaiffy de Viking, his mother's, Elena, of royal blood, and from whom he afterwards claimed the throne of Wales. She was eldest daughter of Thomas A. P. Llewellyn A. P. Owen, by his wife Eleanor Gotch, or Eleanor the Red, daughter and heiress to Catherine, one of the daughters of Llewellyn, last Prince of Wales, and wife to Philip A. P. Ivor of Iscode. A turn Wales by Pennant, London. 4 to 1778 page 302. Return. Of this celebrated antiquary, the author of British Antiquities Revived, and other valuable antiquarian works, 
the friend of Archbishop Usher, Selden, Sir Simon Deus, Sir John Vaughan, and C. It is observed in the Cambrian Register. In genealogy he was so skilled, and his knowledge on that subject derived from such genuine sources, that Hangert became the Herald's College of the Principality, and no pedigree was current until it had obtained his sanction. His misses and library, formerly at Hangert, have been transferred to Rugganidernian, the present seat of his descendant, Sir Robert Vaughan of Nano, and it may be confidently stated that in variety, extent, rarity, and value, they surpass any existing collection, public or private, of documents relating to the principality. Many of them are unique and indispensable for the elucidation of Cambrian literature and antiquities, and their possessor, by entrusting, to some gentleman competent to the task, the privilege of preparing a catalogue raisonny of them, would confer a public benefit which could not be too highly appreciated. To the noble collections of Gladdeeth, Corsagetal, and Mostyn, now united at Mostyn, as also to that of Wednesday, the same observation might be extended. Return. The golden lion on a red field may have been displayed on the standard of Bledon APCYNFYN, but from analogy to the arms assigned to the English monarchs of a corresponding period, it can, as armorial bearings, be only regarded, it is apprehended, as attributive. Of the armorial bearings of the English monarchs of the House of Normandy, if any were used by them, we are left totally without contemporary evidences. The arms of William the Conqueror, which have been for ages attributed to him and the two succeeding monarchs, are taken from the cornice of Queen Elizabeth's monument, in the north aisle of Henry VII, S. Chapel at Westminster. The arms assigned to Stephen are adopted on the authority of Nicholas Upton, in his treatise De Militari Officio, b. 4. Page 129, printed in 1654. For those of Henry II, there is no earlier authority than the cornice of Queen Elizabeth's monument, and it is on the second seal used by Richard I, after his return from captivity, that, for the first time, we find his shield distinctly adorned with the three lions passant guardant and pale, as they have been borne by subsequent English monarchs. Wilmot's Regal Heraldry Coleridge's Christabel Christobel, A Gothic Tale Volume 7, page 206 Your Correspondent S. Y. Ought not to have charged the editors of Coleridge's poems with negligence until he had shown that the lines he quotes were inserted in the original edition of Christabel. They have not the musical flow of Coleridge's versification, but rather the dash and vivacity of Scott. At all events, they are not to be found in the second edition of Christabel, 1816, nor in any subsequent edition. Indeed, I do not think that Coleridge made any alteration in the poem since its composition in 1797 and 1800. I referred to two reviews of Coleridge's poems published in Blackwood in 1819 and 1834, but found no trace of S. Wyas Lyons. An old volume of Blackwood is rather a vague mode of reference. It is somewhat curious that, previous to the publication of Christabel, there appeared a conclusion to that splendid fragment. It was entitled, Christobel, A Gothic Tale, and was published in the European Magazine for April, 1815. It is dated, March, 1815, and signed, V, and was reprinted in Fraser's Magazine for January, 1835. It is stated to be, Written as a sequel to a beautiful legend of a fair lady and her father, D. 
deceived by a witch in the guise of a noble knight's daughter. It commences thus. Whence comes the wavering light which falls? On Langdale's lonely chapel walls? The noble mother of Christobel. Lies in that lone and drear chapelle. The writer of the review in Blackwood, December 1839, of Mr. Tupper's lame and impotent conclusion to Christobel, remarks that. Mr. Tupper does not seem to know that Christabel was continued many years ago, in a style that perplexed the public, and pleased even Coleridge. The ingenious writer meant it for a mere jeu d'esprit. Query, who is this? Ingenious writer? While on the subject of Christabel, I may note a parallelism in reference to a line in part one. Her face, oh call it fair, not pale. Is smeris il bel volto in uncolor. Che non e pallidezza, ma candor. Tasso G. Lib C. 2. St. 26. J. M. B. S. Y. Is. Severe overmuch. And underinformed, in his strictures on the editors of Coleridge's works, 1852, when he blames them for not giving Coleridge the credit of lines which did not belong to him. The lines which S. Y. quotes and a. Great many more. In fact, a third part of Christabel, were sent to Blackwood's magazine in 1820 by the late Dr. William Magin, as the first fruits of those imitations and parodies for which he afterwards became so famous. The success of his imitation of Coleridge's style is proved by the indignation of your correspondent. It is no small honor to the memory and talents of the gifted but erratic Magin that the want of his lines should be deemed a defect or omission in one of the most beautiful poems in the English language. But in future, before he condemns editors for carelessness, s. y. should be sure that he himself is correct. A. B. R. Belmont. Photographic Notes and Queries. Economical Way of Iodizing Paper. The extravagant price of the salt called iodide of potassium has led me to experiments as to whether paper could not be iodized in another form, and having been successful, I offer the process to the readers of N. and Q. Having verified it three times, I can safely say that it is quite as effectual as using the above salt. The first solution to be made is a saturated solution of iodine. Put about 60 grains of iodine, the quantity is not of importance, into an ounce bottle, and add proof spirits of wine, set it near the fire, on the hob, and when it is nearly boiling, agitate, and it will soon become a concentrated essence. Take now a bottle of clear glass, called a quart bottle, and put in it about two ounces of what is called carbonate of potash, nothing more than purified pearlash. Fill up with water to within an inch of the neck, and agitate. When it is dissolved, add any of the other approved sensitives, in discretionable doses, such as fluoride or bromide of potassa, ammoniac salt, or common salt. It may have about sixty grains of the latter, and when all are dissolved, Add the iodine. This is added by degrees and shaken, and when it is a pale yellow, it may be considered to be ready for iodizing. From some experiments, I am led to believe that a greater quantity of iodine may, if necessary, be added, only the color should not be dark. And should the operator reach this point, a few drops of solution of cyanide of potassium may be added, until the pale color returns. Bromine water, I believe, may be added but that I have not used hitherto, and therefore cannot answer for its effects. The paper then having its usual wash of nitrate of silver, is then floated on the solution about one minute, 
and the accustomed process gone through as described by most photographers. It is only disposed to require a pretty strong solution of silver, say 30 grains to the ounce of water. This I attribute to the potash being in a little more caustic condition than when recrystallized with iodine. And the only difference in the above formula between the two states is that the iodine in the medical preparation is incorporated by means of iron filings with the water, which I only interpret into being a cheaper method, which makes its high price the more scandalous. And I hope this method will save photographers from the imposition. The price of a quart of iodide of potassium would be about six shillings. By the above about ten pence. And I can safely say, it is quite as effectual. Theoretically it appears to be better, because iodine is exceedingly difficult to preserve after being dissolved and recrystallized. And much of it is lost in the preparing iodized paper, as, for instance, the usual way generally requires floating on free iodine at the last, and with the formula here given, after using once, some small quantity of tincture of iodine should be added before putting away, as the silver laid upon the surface of the paper absorbs more of the iodine than the potash. Therefore, a very pale yellow may be its usual test for efficiency, and the equivalent will be maintained. N.B. Potash varying much in its alkaline property, some samples will remain colorless with addition of iodine, in which case the judgment must guide as to the quantity of iodine. It should not exceed the ounce of tincture. About two drams may be added after using it for paper. Weld Taylor. Weld Taylor. 7. Conduit Street West. Queries on Sir W. Newton's process. The process of Sir W. Newton is nearly similar to one I have successfully used for some years, and I can recommend it as effective and simple. Sir W. Newton. A difficulty I have lately found has been with my iodized paper, which, when freshly used, is well enough, but if kept a month or two, will only allow of the paper being prepared to take views just before using. I should much like to know how this occurs. If Sir W. Newton would answer the following queries, he would add to the obligations that many others besides myself are under to him. Sir W. Newton. 1. What paper does he use for positives, and what for negatives? 2. Is it not better to dissolve the silver and iodide of potassium in 3 ounces of water each instead of 1? C. N. N. Q. Volume 7. Pages 151. 277. 3. Is spring water fit for washing the iodized paper, if it contains either sulfate or bicarbonate of lime or muriate of soda? 4. How long ought the iodized paper to keep good? 5. How long should the negative paper, on a moderately warm day, keep after being made sensitive, before exposing to the action of light, and how soon after that should it be developed? John Stewart. John Stewart. Brighton. Suggestion to Photographers. The Rev. Charles Forster, in his One Primeval Language, page 96, speaks of the desirableness of obtaining copies of two great inscriptions in the Jebel Makateb, one in 41, the other in 67 lines, supposed to have been written by the Israelites during their exode. In the words, however, of the Comte d'Antraigues, which he quotes in page 84. I have fought right six mois done travail opiniator, pour dessiner la totalite de C.S. characters. Is not this a temptation to some of your photographic friends, who may be turning their steps to the east during the ensuing season, 
to possess themselves of a treasure which by the application of their art they might acquire almost in as many minutes? Verbum sat. Verbum sat. Replies to minor queries. Portrait of Pope, Volume 7, Page 180. I cannot at this movement reply to Mr. J. Knight's query, but perhaps can correct an error in it. There was no white of Derby, but Edward Wright of that city was an artist of high repute. And I have in my possession a portrait of Pope done by him. On the back of this portrait is the following inscription. Mr. J. Knight's. Edward Wright, the painter of this picture, was an intimate friend of Mr. Richardson, and obtained leave from him to copy the portrait of Mr. Pope which Mr. R. was then painting, and had nearly finished. When the outline was sketched out by E. Wright, he happened to meet Mr. Pope at dinner, and on mentioning to him how he was employed, Mr. Pope said, Why should you take a copy, when the original is at your service? I will come and sit to you. He did so, and this picture was finished from Mr. Pope himself. This account I had from the late William Wright, E.S.Q., my honored uncle, who had the picture from the painter himself. At Mr. Wright's death, it came to his widow, who gave it to my brother, at whose decease, it came to me. William Falconer, M.D. F.R.S. William Falconer. Bath, March 21, 1803. The size of the picture is 2 feet 5 inches and a quarter by 2 feet 1 eighth of an inch. It is a profile. It has never been engraved, and is in good condition. R.W.F. Bath. Return. Joseph was the Christian name of the celebrated painter usually styled Wright of Derby. Edition. Ed. Return. Thomas Falconer, Yeskew of Chester. Conundrum, Volume 6. Page 602. Though I cannot answer the query of Rufus, as to the manner in which the species of conundrum communicated by him may be designated, I beg to enclose an answer to it, thinking you might perhaps deem it worthy of insertion. Rufus. Cold, sinful, sorrowful, this earth, and all who seek in it their rest. But though such mother gives us birth, let us not call ourselves unblessed, though weak and earthly be our frame. Within it dwells a nobler part, a holy, heavenly, living flame, pervades and purifies the heart, to loving, glowing hearts and joy. Shall not our hearths and homes abound? May not glad praise our lips employ? And though on earth half heaven be found? E. H. G. Herbes, Costumes Francais, Volume 7, page 182. In answer to the query by Pictor, Mr. Philip Darrell begs to state that in the library at Cale Hill there is a copy of M. Herbes' book. It is the last edition, Paris, 1840, and purports to be Augmenté d'un examen critique et de preuves positives. And C. It begins by owning to certain errors in the former edition, in consequence of which M. Herb had traveled through all France to obtain the means of correcting them in various localities. Pictor. Mr. Philip Darrell. P. D. Cale Hill, Kent. Curious Fact in Natural Philosophy, Volume 7, page 206. In Young's Natural Philosophy it is said that if the cup of a barometer is placed in a vessel somewhat larger than the cup, so contrived that the tube of the barometer may fit airtight in the top of the vessel, and if two holes are made in the vessel on opposite sides, a current of air driven in at one hole will cause the mercury to fall. Is not the case of the cards analogous to this? 
And might not the cause be that the current of air carries away with it some of that contained between the cards, and so that the air is sufficiently rarefied to cause a pressure upwards greater than that caused by the current downwards, and the effect of gravity? Might not the sudden fall of the barometer before storms be from a cause similar in some degree to this? A. B. C. Oxford. Hod cum Jesuitis, caitis cum Jesuitis. In. N. N. Q. For February 7, 1852, a correspondent L. H. J. T. asked for some clue to the above. Last March a friend of mine purchased in Paris, at a bookstall on the Quai d'Orsay, a manuscript book, very beautifully written, and in the old binding of the time, which appears to be the transcript of a printed volume. Its title is Le Jesuit Secularise. A Cologne, Chez Jacques Milbram. 1683. It is a dialogue between Dorval, Abbe et Dr. N.T.H., E.T. Mainburg, Jesuit Secularise. And at the end, page 197, is a long Latin ballad entitled Canticum Jesuiticum. Filling eight small eight vo pages, the opening stanza of which is Opulenta civitates, Ubus sunt commoditates, Semper quaerunt isti patres, and the conclusion of the whole is, in effect, the line of which your correspondent speaks Vita namque Christiana, abhorred hac doctrina, tanquam ficta et insana, ergo, vasca cum Jesuitis, nonite cum Jesuitis. I should be glad to be certified by any of your correspondents of the actual existence of the printed volume, which probably was sought for and destroyed by the authorities on account of its pestilent contents. C. H. H. Westdean, Sussex. Tradescant Family, Volume 3, page 393. In further illustration of this subject, and for the information of your correspondents who have taken an interest in the restoration of the tomb in Lambeth Churchyard, I beg through you to say that I have found the will of the grandsire. John Tradescant, of South Lambeth, Company Surrey Gardener. It is dated January 8, 1637, and proved May 2, 1638, so that the period of his death may be fairly placed in that year, as suggested by Mr. Pinkerton's extracts from the churchwarden's accounts, volume 3, page 394, and the defect in the parish register for some months following July. 1637, will account for no entry being found of his actual burial. The younger Tradescant was his only child, and at the date of the will he had two grandchildren, John and Francis Tradescant. His son was the residuary legatee, with a proviso that if he should desire to part with or sell his cabinet, he should first offer the same to the prince. His brother-in-law, Alexander Norman, and Mr. William Ward, were the executors, and proved the will as Mr. Pinkerton stated that he was on the trace of new and curious matter respecting the Tradescants, he may find it useful to know that John Tradescant the Elder held the lease of some property at Woodham Water in Essex, and two houses in Long Acre and Covent Garden. Mr. Pinkerton's. Mr. Pinkerton. G. Arms of Joan Dark, Volume 7, Page 210. I believe I can answer the inquiry of Bent. The family of Joan d'Arc was ennobled by Charles VII. In December, 1429, with a grant of the following magnificent armorial coat, viz. Azure, between two fleurs de lis, or, a sword in pale, point upwards, the hilt or the blade argent, in chief, on the sword's point, an open crown, fleur de lis, or, 
bend. In consequence of the proud distinction thus granted, of bearing for their arms the fleur-de-lis of France, the family assumed the name of Dulis d'Arc, which their descendants continued to bear, until, as was supposed, the line became extinct in the last century, in the person of Coulomb Dulis, prior of Coutras, who died in 1760. But the fact is, that the family still exists in this country in the descendants of a Count Dulis, who settled in Hampshire as a refugee at the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, he having embraced the Protestant religion. His eldest male descendant, and, as I believe, the representative of the ancient and noble family of Dulis d'Arc, derived from a brother of the Maid of Orleans, is a most worthy friend and neighbor of mine, the Rev. J. T. Liss, fellow of Exeter College, whose ancestors, since the period of their settlement in England, thought proper to drop the foreign title and to curtail their name to its present form. W. Snaid. W. Snaid. Denton. Judeus Odor, Volume 7, Page 207. The lines are to be found in the London Magazine, May, 1820, Page 504. Even the notion, which is not yet entirely extinct among the vulgar though Sir T., Brown satisfactorily refuted it by abundant arguments deduced from reason and experience. The notion that they have a peculiar and disagreeable smell is, perhaps, older than he imagined. Venantius, a bishop of Poitiers in the 6th century, who holds a place in every corpus poetarum, says, Abluder judeus odor baptismate divo. E.T. Nova progenies reddita surgit aquis. Vincent Zambrosio's suave spiramine roars. Vertice profuso, chrismatus a flat odor. Venant. Pomat. Lib. 4. XX. Cosa meravigliosa, says an Italian author, che ricevuto il santo battesimo, non pisano più. I believe the reference. Lib. 4. XX. Is inaccurate. At least I have not succeeded in finding the lines. That may be an excusable mistake, not so the citing. An Italian author. Instead of giving his name, or saying that the writer had forgotten it. The power of baptism over the Judeus odor is spoken of familiarly in the Epistoli Obscurum Virorum. Nupra quando unis dixit mihi quot non credit, quot fefricorn ad hoc est bonus Christianus, quia dixit quot vidit eum anti unamanum, et ad hoc fobat sicit alias Judeus, et timen dicent communiter, quot quando Judei baptizanter, non amplius fotent. Ergo credit quot fefricorn habit ad hoc nequam post oras. E.T. quando theologi credent quot est optimus Christianus, tunc eriditorum Judeus, E.T. fides non sdi danda, quia omnes homines habent malum suspicionum de Judeis baptizatus. Sed respondio vobis ad illum objectum, vas dicitus quot fefricorn fotet. Posito casu, quot est verum, sicit non credo, nec unquam intellexi. Dico quot est alia causa hujus foetoris. Kia Johannes Pfefferkorn, quando fiut judius, fiut macellarius, et macellarii communiter idiom fotent, tunc omnes ca audierunt, dixerunt quot est bona ratio. Edition Munch, Leipzig, 1827, page 209. A modern instance of belief in the order is in, but cannot decently be quoted from, the stage, a poem by John Brown. P. 22, London, 1819. H. B. E. C. U. U. Club. Philip Doverney, Volume 7, Page 236.
this cadet of a Jersey family, whose capture, when a lieutenant in our Royal Navy, led to his being in Paris as a prisoner on parole, and thereby eventually to his adoption by the last Prince of Bouillon, was a person of too much notoriety to make it necessary to tell the tale of his various fortunes in your columns, of his imprisonment in the Bastille, and subsequently for a short period in the Temple. His residence at Mont Orgois Castle in Jersey, for the purpose of managing communications, with royalists or other agents, on the opposite French coasts, or the dates of his successive commissions in the navy, in which he got upon the list of rear admirals in 1805, and was a vice-admiral of the Blue in 1810. I have not access at present to any list of the lives of public characters, but think I can recollect that there was an account given of him in that publication, and there can be no doubt but that any necrology, of the date of his death, would contain details at some length. I suspect there is mistake in Brooks' Gazetteer, as quoted by E. H. A. For I feel rather confident that the reigning duke had no son living when he made over the succession to one whom he did not know to be a relation, though bearing the family name. As, however, this adopted representative of the duke's de Bouillon has been mentioned, it may be a fit occasion to ask if any of your Jersey readers can tell what became, at his death, of a beautifully preserved and illuminated French translation of the scriptures, which he showed to your correspondent in 1814, as having been the gift of the black prince's captive, King John of France, to the Duc de Berry, his son, from whom it had passed into the possession of the Ducs de Bouillon. His Highness, for the concession of this style was still a result of his dukedom, said that he had lent this Bible for a while to the British Antiquarian Society which had engraved some costumes and figures from the vignettes which adorned the initials of chapters. H. W. Dr. Parze, E. A. O. Volume 7, page 156. The learned doctor indulged in boundless exultation at the unavailing efforts of mankind to give significancy to the above cabalistical combination of vowels. The combination was formed in the following manner. S. A. Mule P. A. R. R. engaged his friend H. E. N. R. Y. H. O. Mare to assist him in correcting the press, and so he took the A. E. of their Christian names and the A. O. of their surnames to form a puzzle which, like many other puzzles, is scarcely worth solution. S. A. Mule P. A. R. R. H. E. N. R. Y. H. O. Mare. A. E. A. O. Oedipus. Oedipus. Jewish Lineaments, Volume 6, page 362. Is this query put in reference to the individual or the race? In either case the lineaments would wear out. In the first, intermarriage would soon destroy them, as I have an instance in my own family, wherein the person, though only three removes from true Jewish blood, retains only the faintest trace of Jewish ancestry. In the second instance, the cause of the change is more subtle. The Jew, as long as he adheres to Judaism, mingles with Hebrew people, adopts their manners, shares their pursuits, and imbibes their tone of thought. Just as the character is reflected in the countenance, so will he maintain his Jewish looks. But as soon as he adopts Christian views, and mingles with Christian people, he will lose those peculiarities of countenance, the preservation of which depended on his former career. We see examples of this in those Franks who have resided for a long time in the East, adopting the dress and customs of the people they have mingled with. Such persons acquire an eastern tone of countenance, 
and many have been mistaken by their friends for veritable Turks or Arabs, the countenance having acquired the expression of the people with whom they have mingled most freely. The same fact is illustrated in the countenances of aged couples, especially in country places. Frequently these, though widely distinct in appearance when first married, grow at last exactly like each other, and in old age are sometimes scarcely to be distinguished by the features. If not quite to the purpose, these instances illustrate the correspondence of the life and the looks, which is the philosophy of the query on Jewish lineaments. Shirley Hibbard. Shirley Hibbard. Sotatic Verses, Volume 6, Pages 209, 352, 445. There is an English example of this kind of line, attributed, I think, to Taylor the water poet. Lewd did I live and evil I did dwell. To make this perfect, however, and must not be written at full length, and dwell, must be content with half its usual amount of liquid. It is difficult to make sense of any of the Latin sotatics quoted in N and Q, except that beginning, Signa T, and C, even the clue given by the mention of the legend in page 209, does not enable one to find a meaning in Roma Tibi, and C. Can any of your readers tell me whence comes the following sotatic elegiac poem, and construe it for me? Salta, tu levis es, summus ses i vila atlas. Amina eni sinimus, summinus es animo. Sin oro, carat arcana cratera coronis. Una marcas, anime semina sacra manu. Angira regnato, mutatum, o tanher regna. Sinatero, torus si root orit anus. Milo subi rivis, summus si viribus olim. Mutaceds, animal lamina seed satum. Tangerit, I vidias, elisi divite regnit. Aut atros ubinim manibus ordatua. O tu cajuris, rem non mersuris acuto. Tello, sis eni tenet? Non tenet ensis solit. Harry Leroy Temple. Harry Leroy Temple. Bells at Funerals, Volume 2, page 478. The following extract will doubtless be interesting to Mr. Gaddy, if it has hitherto escaped his notice. Mr. Gaddy. June 27, 1648. The visitors ordered that the bellman of the university should not go about in such manner as was heretofore used at the funeral of any member of the university. This was purposely to prevent the solemnity that was to be performed at the funeral of Dr. Radcliffe, principal of B. N. C. Lately dead. For it must be known that it hath been the custom, time out of mind, that when head of house, doctor, or master of considerable degree was to be buried, the university bellman was to put on the gown and the formalities of the person defunct, and with his bell go into every college and hall, and there make open proclamation, after two rings with his bell, that forasmuch as God had been pleased to take out of the world such a person, he was to give notice to all persons of the university, that on such a day, and at such an hour, he was solemnly to be buried, and see. But the visitors did not only forbid this, but the bellman's going before the corpse, from the house or college, to the church or chapel. A. Wood, quoted in Oxoniana, Volume 4. Page 206. E. H. A. Collar of S.S., Volume 6. Pages 182. 352. Dot, there is, in the church of Fanfield, Yorkshire, among other tombs and effigies of the Marmions, the original lords of the place, a magnificent tomb of alabaster, 
on which are the recumbent figures of a knight and his lady, in excellent preservation. These are probably effigies of Robert Marmion and his wife Loda, second daughter of Herbert de S. T. Quinton, who died in the latter part of the fourteenth, or early in the fifteenth century. The armor of the knight is of this period, and he is furnished with the SS collar of Lancaster, which is developed in a remarkably fine manner. His juppin is furnished with the ver, the bearing of the marmion, whilst the chevronels of S. T. Quinton are evident on the mantle of the lady. Over the tomb is placed a hearse of iron, furnished with stands for holding lighted candles or torches. W.M. Proctor. W.M. Proctor. York. Dr. Marshall, Volume 7, Page 83. I beg to inform you, I. S. that the King's Chaplain and Dean of Gloucester in 1682 was not Anthony, but Thomas Marshall, D.D., Rector of Lincoln College, Oxford, a great benefactor to his college and the university, and highly distinguished for his knowledge of the Oriental and Teutonic languages. E. H. A. Shelton Oak, Volume 7, page 193. Shelton Oak is a remarkable fine tree, and is still standing. It is apparently in a healthy state. The grounds and mansion, I believe, are in the possession of two maiden ladies, who allow visitors free access to this interesting object. In summertime its owners and their friends frequently tea within its venerable trunk. The acorns are dealt out to those who may wish them at a trifling sum, and the money devoted towards the building of a church in the neighboring locality. It is to be hoped that no innovation or local improvement will ever necessitate its removal. H. M. Bilby. H. M. Bilby. North Brixton. God and the World. Volume 7. Page 134. Fulke Greville, Lord Brooke, was the author of the lines quoted by W. H., but he has not given them correctly. They may be found in the 66 and 67 stanzas of his Traité of Wars, and are as follows. 66. 67. 66. God and the world they worship still together. Draw not their laws to him, but his to theirs. Untrue to both so prosperous in either, amid their own desires still raising fears, unwise as all distracted powers be, strangers to God, fools in humanity. 67. Too good for great things, and too great for good. Their princes serve their priest, yet that priest is grown king, even by the arts of flesh and blood. N.C. Works, page 82, London, 1633, 8 V.O. As for the last line of the quotation, while still I dare not wait upon I would. It smacks very strongly of Macbeth, Act I, SC7, and the poor cat ith adage. Catus amat Pisces, said non voltingir plantas. R.T. R.T. Warmington. Drang, volume 7, page 39. Drang is still the Danish term for a servant or a boy. Their present station in society could perhaps be only found by a correspondence with Copenhagen, and would then possibly give as little elucidation of their former social position as an explanation of our modern villain would throw any light upon the villainy of Doomsday Book. William Bell. William Bell. 17. Gower Place. Meals, Volume 7, page 208. In Celtic, the word meal means any rising ground of a round form, such as a low hillock 
and the name of meals may have been given to sandbanks from having a resemblance to small hills at low water. Fraz. Crossley. Fraz. Crossley. Along the sea margin of the tongue of land between the rivers Merza and Dee, the sand has been thrown up in domes. Two little hamlets built among those sand hills are called North and South Meals. J.M.N. Liverpool. Richardson or Murphy, Volume 7, Page 107. I possess a copy of Literary Relics of the Late Joseph Richardson, E.S.Q., formerly of S.T. John's College, Cambridge, and C. 42, London, 1807. Prefixed is a line engraving by W. J. Newton from a painting by M. A. Sheesq R.A. This is a subscriber's copy and belonged as such to one of my nearest relatives. The inscription at the bottom of the plate is the same as that mentioned by your correspondent, and I cannot but think the portrait is really that of J. Richardson. The book was published by Ridgeway, number 170. Piccadilly. C.I.R. Miscellaneous. Books and Odd Volumes. Wanted to Purchase. Memoirs of the Rose by Mr. John Holland. 1 Volume 12 M.O., London, 1824. Memoirs of the Rose. Mr. John Holland. Psyche and Other Poems by Mrs. Mary Ty. Portrait. 8 V.O., 1811. Psyche and Other Poems. Mrs. Mary Ty. Mellon's Handbook of Chemistry. Inorganic Part. Mellon's Handbook of Chemistry. Archaeologia. Volumes 3, 4, V, 6, 7, 8, X, 27, 28, Unbound. Archaeologia. The History of Shinstone by the Rev. H. Saunders. 4-2, London. 1794. The History of Shenstone. Rev. H. Saunders. Lubbock's Elementary Treatise on the Tides. Lubbock's Elementary Treatise on the Tides. Transactions of the Microscopical Society of London. Volume 1, and Parts 1, and 2. Of Volume 2. Transactions of the Microscopical Society of London. Curtis's Botanical Magazine. First and Second Series Collected. Curtis's Botanical Magazine. Todd's Cyclopedia of Anatomy and Physiology. Complete, or any portion. Todd's Cyclopedia of Anatomy and Physiology. Gladstone's W. E. Two Letters to the Earl of Aberdeen on the State Prosecutions of the Neapolitan Government. First Edition. 8 V.O. Gladstone's W. E. Two Letters to the Earl of Aberdeen on the State Prosecutions of the Neapolitan Government. Swift's Works. Dublin G. Faulkner. 19 Volumes 8 V.O. 1768. Volume 1. Swift's Works. Pursuit of Knowledge Under Difficulties. Original Edition. Volume 1. Pursuit of Knowledge Under Difficulties. The Book of Adam. The Book of Adam. The Christian Magazine. Volume for 1763. The Christian Magazine. Pro matrimonio principis cum defuncti uxoris soror contracto responsum juris collegii juris consultorum in Academia Rintilensi, circa 1655. Pro matrimonio principis cum defuncti uxoris soror contracto responsum juris collegii juris consultorum in Academia Rintilensi. Mana juris consult. De matrimonio. Mana juris consult. De matrimonio. 
Bruckner, de matrimonio. Bruckner, de matrimonio. Asterisk correspondents sending lists of books wanted are requested to send their names. Asterisk letters, stating particulars and lowest price, carriage free, to be sent to Mr. Bell, publisher of Notes and Queries, 186, Fleet Street. Mr. Bell. Notices to correspondents. The length of several of the communications in our present number compels us to postpone this week our notes on books, and C. Notes on books. S. Sunderland. We must refer our correspondent who inquires respecting eating carlings, or gray peas, upon care or Carl Sunday, and the connection between that name and Char Freitag, the German name for Good Friday, to Brand's Popular Antiquities, Volume 1, pages 113 to 116. Edition Bone. R. Elliot, yes, we have a letter for this photographic correspondent. Where shall we direct it? R. Elliot Yescu, R. J. S., who inquires as to Richard Brandon having been the executioner of Charles I., is referred to Sir H. Ellis's Letters Illustrative of English History, Second Series, Volume 3, pages 340, 341, and 2. N. N. Q., Volume 2, pages 110, 158, 268, Volume 5, page 28, Volume 6. Page 198. W. M. R. E. How can we address a letter to this correspondent? David Brown. The lines. David Brown. For he who fights and runs away may live to fight another day. So generally supposed to be butlers are really from Menace and Smith's Musarum Delici. For much curious illustration of them, see our first volume, pages 177. 210, N.C. A.H. The words which Caesar addressed to Brutus were, Too quoque brute, inquisitor. Stowe tell us that Bevis Marx is a corruption of Beery's Marx, a great house belonging to the abbots of Berry having formerly stood there. Inquisitor. J.L.S. will find an article on the speech of the clown, in Twelfth Night, to Toby Belch and Sir Andrew Aguecheek. Did you never see the picture of we three? In our fifth volume, page 338, and C. C. V. The journal in question is sold to those who are not members of the society. W. D. B. We do not think that the majority of our readers would be pleased to see our columns occupied with the proposed discussion respecting the American sea serpent. Rev. J. L. Sisson's photographic notes in our next. We accept with thanks the polite offer made by our correspondent in his postscript. Rev. J. L. Sissons. Coakley. The fine reticulated lines in question are caused by the hyposoda not being thoroughly washed off. Coakley. Photographic pictures. Dot. A selection of the above beautiful productions may be seen at Bland and Long's, 153. Fleet Street, where may also be procured apparatus of every description and pure chemicals for the practice of photography in all its branches. Calotype, daguerreotype, and glass pictures for the stereoscope. Bland and long, opticians, philosophical and photographical instrument makers, and operative chemists, 153. Fleet Street. To photographers. Mr. Philip Delamotte begs to announce that he has now made arrangements for printing calotypes in large or small quantities either from paper or glass negatives. 
gentlemen who are desirous of having good impressions of their works, may see specimens of Mr. Delamotte's printing at his own residence, 38. Chepstow Place, Bayswater or at Mr. George Bell's, 186. Fleet Street. Photography. Collodion, iodized with the ammonioiodide of silver, J.B. Hawken and Company, Chemists, 289. Strand were the first in England who published the application of this agent, see Athenaeum, August 14th. Their collodion, price 9d, per ounce, retains its extraordinary sensitiveness, tenacity, and color unimpaired for months. It may be exported to any climate, and the iodizing compound mixed as required. J.B. Hawken and Company manufacture pure chemicals and all apparatus with the latest improvements adapted for all the photographic and daguerreotype processes. Cameras for developing in the open country. Glass baths adapted to any camera. Lenses from the best makers. Waxed and iodized papers, and C. Just published, price 1S, free by post 1S, 4D. The waxed paper photographic process of Gustave Legray's new edition. Translated from the French. Sole agents in the United Kingdom for Voigtlander and Sons celebrated lenses for portraits and views. General Depot for Turner's, Watman's, Canson Frères, La Croix, and other Talbotype papers. Pure photographic chemicals. Instructions and specimens in every branch of the art. George Knight and Sons, Foster Lane, London. Photographic paper. Negative and positive papers of Whatman's, Turner's, Sanford's, and Canson Frere's make. Wax paper for Legray's process. Iodized and sensitive paper for every kind of photography. Sold by John Sanford, photographic stationer, Aldine Chambers, 13. Potter Noster Row, London. Bennett's model watch, as shown at the Great Exhibition. Number 1. Class X. In gold and silver cases, in five qualities, and adapted to all climates, may now be had at the manufactory, 65. Cheapside. Superior gold London-made patent levers. 17, 15, and 12 guineas. Ditto, in silver cases, 8, 6, and 4 guineas. First-rate Geneva levers, in gold cases, 12, 10, and 8 guineas. Ditto, in silver cases, 8, 6, and 5 guineas. Superior lever, with chronometer balance, gold, 27, 23, and 19 guineas. Bennett's pocket chronometer, gold, 50 guineas, silver, 40 guineas. Every watch skillfully examined, timed, and its performance guaranteed. Barometers 2L, 3L, and 4L. Thermometers from 1S, each. Bennett, watch, clock and instrument maker to the Royal Observatory the Board of Ordnance, the Admiralty, and the Queen. 65. Cheapside. To photographers. Pure chemicals, with every requisite for the practice of photography, according to the instructions of Legray, Hunt, Brabison, and other writers, may be obtained, wholesale and retail, of William Bolton, formerly Diamond and Company, manufacturer of pure chemicals for photographic and other purposes. Lists may be had on application. Improved apparatus for iodizing paper in vacuo, according to Mr. Stewart's instructions. 146. Holborn Bars. Photography. The ammonioiodide of silver and collodion, prepared by Messrs. Delatouche and Company, 
Operative Chemists, 147. Oxford Street is now generally used by photographers and cannot be surpassed in the beautiful results it produces. Specimens may be seen on application. Messrs. Delatouche and Company supply apparatus with the most recent improvements, pure chemicals, English and foreign papers, and every article connected with photography on paper or glass. Instruction given in the art. See Henna's new work on the collodion process, giving the most practical directions yet published, price 1s, or free by post 1s, 60. Photography. Horn and Company S. Iodized Collodion, for obtaining instantaneous views, and portraits in from 3 to 30 seconds, according to light. Portraits obtained by the above, for delicacy of detail rival the choicest daguerreotypes, specimens of which may be seen at their establishment. Also every description of apparatus, chemicals, and C, and C, used in this beautiful art. 123. And 121. Newgate Street. Western Life Assurance and Annuity Society. 3. Parliament Street, London. Founded A.D. 1842. Directors. H. E. Bicknell, E.S.Q.W., Cabell, E.S.Q.T., S. Cox, June, E.S.Q., M.P.G., H. Drew, E.S.Q.W., Evans, E.S.Q.W., Freeman, E.S.Q.F., Fuller, E.S.Q., J. H. Goodhart, E.S.Q.T., Gristle, ESQJ, Hunt, ESQJ, A. Lethbridge, ESQE, Lucas, ESQJ, Liz Seeger, ESQJ, B. White, ESQJ, Carterwood, ESQ, Trustees, W. Waitley, ESQQC, L. C. Humphrey, ESQQC, George Drew, ESQ, Physician, William Rich, Basham, MD Bankers, Messrs. Cox, Bidolf, and Company. Charing Cross. Valuable privilege. Policies affected in this office do not become void through temporary difficulty in paying a premium, as permission is given upon application to suspend the payment at interest, according to the conditions detailed in the prospectus. Specimens of rates of premium for assuring 100L, with a share in three-fourths of the profits. Age. S. D. Age. S. D. 17. 1. 14. 4. 32. 2. 10. 8. 22. 1. 18. 8. 37. 2. 18. 6. 27. 2. 4. 5. 42. 3. 8. 2. Arthur Scratchley, M.A. F.R.A.S. Actuary. Now ready, price 10S. 60. Second edition, with material additions, industrial investment and emigration, being a treatise on benefit-building societies and on the general principles of land investment, exemplified in the cases of freehold land societies, building companies, and C. With a mathematical appendix on compound interest and life assurance. By Arthur Scratchley, M.A., Actuary to the Western Life Assurance Society, 3. Parliament Street, London. The Quarterly Review, no. Clexive dot. Advertisements for the forthcoming number must be forwarded to the publisher by the 26th, and bills for insertion by the 28th instant. John Murray, Albemarle Street. 8 Vio, 
Price 21s. Some account of domestic architecture in England, from the conquest to the end of the 13th century, with numerous illustrations of existing remains from original drawings. By T. Hudson Turner. What Horace Walpole attempted, and what Sir Charles Locke Eastlake has done for all painting, elucidated its history and traced its progress in England by means of the records of expenses and mandates of the successive sovereigns of the realm. Mr. Hudson Turner has now achieved for domestic architecture in this country during the 12th and 13th centuries. Architect. The book of which the title is given above is one of the very few attempts that have been made in this country to treat this interesting subject in anything more than a superficial manner. Mr. Turner exhibits much learning and research, and he has consequently laid before the reader much interesting information. It is a book that was wanted and that affords us some relief from the mass of works on ecclesiastical architecture with which of late years we have been deluged. The work is well illustrated throughout with wood engravings of the more interesting remains, and will prove a valuable addition to the antiquary's library. Literary Gazette It is as a textbook on the social comforts and condition of the squires and gentry of England during the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, that the leading value of Mr. Turner's present publication will be found to consist. Turner's handsomely printed volume is profusely illustrated with careful woodcuts of all important existing remains, made from drawings by Mr. Blower and Mr. Tupany. Athenaeum. John Henry Parker, Oxford, and 377. Strand, London. For sale. The Illustrated Clarendon, formerly in the Duke of Buckingham's library at Stowe. This splendid copy of Clarendon's History of the Rebellion is in three volumes folio, largest paper. Old Red Morocco with gilt edges, and contains upwards of two hundred engraved portraits of historical persons, many of great rarity, and by eminent masters. The added portraits all neatly inlaid, and the whole forming a rare and highly interesting collection. Price 21L, applied by letter addressed to G, care of Mr. Bell, publisher, Fleet Street. Kerr and Strang, perfumers and wig makers, 124. Leadenhall Street, London, respectfully inform the nobility and public that they have invented and brought to the greatest perfection the following leading articles, besides numerous others, their ventilating natural curl, ladies' and gentlemen's perukes, either crops or full dress, with partings and crowns so natural as to defy detection, and with or without their improved metallic springs, ventilating fronts, bandeaux, border, gnats, bands a la rain, and sea also their instantaneous liquid hair. Dye, the only dye that really answers for all colors, and never fades nor acquires that unnatural red or purple tint common to all other dyes. It is permanent, free of any smell, and perfectly harmless. Any lady or gentleman, skeptical of its effects in dyeing any shade of color, can have it applied, free of any charge, at Kerr and Strings, 124. Leadenhall Street Sold in cases at 7s, 60, 15s, and 20s, samples 3s, 60, sent to all parts on receipt of post office order or stamps. The Camden Society. For the publication of Early Historical and Literary Remains. The Camden Society is instituted to perpetuate and render accessible whatever is valuable, but at present little known, amongst the materials for the civil, ecclesiastical, or literary history of the United Kingdom, and it accomplishes that object by the publication of historical documents, letters, 
ancient poems, and whatever else lies within the compass of its designs, in the most convenient forms, and at the least possible expense consistent with the production of useful volumes. The subscription to the society is 1L, per annum, which becomes due in advance on the first day of May in every year, and is received by Messrs. Nichols, 25, Parliament Street, or by the several local secretaries. Members may compound for their future annual subscriptions by the payment of 10L, over and above the subscription for the current year. The compositions received have been funded in the 3%, consoles to an amount exceeding 900L. No books are delivered to a member until his subscription for the current year has been paid. New members are admitted at the meetings of the council held on the first Wednesday in every month. The publications for the past year, 1851-2, were 52. Privy Purse Expenses of Charles II and James II Edited by J. Y. Ackerman Yeskew's Section Essay 53. The Chronicle of the Grey Friars of London Edited from M.S. In the Cottonian Library by J. Goff Nichols Yeskew F.S.A. 54. Promptorium, an English and Latin dictionary of words in use during the 15th century, compiled chiefly from the Promptorium Parvillorum. By Albert Way Yeskew M.A. F.S.A. Volume 2. M. to R. In the press. The following works are at press, and will be issued from time to time, as soon as ready. Books for 1852-3. 55. The second volume of the Camden Miscellany, containing 1. Expenses of John of Brabant, 1292-3. 2. Household Accounts of Princess Elizabeth, 1551-2. 3. Request and Suite of a True-Hearted Englishman by W. Calmly, 1553. 4. Discovery of the Jesuits' College at Clerkenwell, 1627-8. 5. Trelawney Papers, 6. Autobiography of Dr. William Taswell. Now ready for delivery to all members not in arrear of their subscription. 56. The Verney Papers. A selection from the correspondence of the Verney family during the reign of Charles I, to the year 1639 from the originals in the possession of Sir Harry Verney Bart, to be edited by John Bruce, Yeskew Tree. Essay will be ready immediately. 57. The Correspondence of Lady Brilliana Harley During the Civil Wars, to be edited by the Rev. T. T. Lewis M.A., will be ready immediately. Roll of the Household Expenses of Richard Swinfield, Bishop of Hereford, in the years 1289-1290 with illustrations from other and coeval documents. To be edited by the Rev. John Webb, M.A., F.S.A. Regularly in Closerum, the Ancran Rule. A treatise on the rules and duties of monastic life, in the Anglo-Saxon dialect of the 13th century, addressed to a society of anchorites, being a translation from the Latin work of Simon de Ghent, Bishop of Salisbury. To be edited from Mrs. in the Cottonian Library, British Museum, with an introduction, Glossarial Notes, and C. By the Rev. James Morton, B.D., Prebendary of Lincoln. The Doomsday of S.T. Pauls, a description of the manners belonging to the Church of S.T. Pauls in London in the year 1222. By the Ven, Archdeacon Hale. Romance of Jean and Blonde of Oxford by Philippe de Reims, an Anglo-Norman poet of the latter end of the 12th century. Edited from the unique M.S.
in the Royal Library at Paris, by M. Leroux de Lincey, editor of the Roman de Brut. Communications from gentlemen desirous of becoming members may be addressed to the secretary, or to Messrs. Nichols. William J. Tom's Secretary. 25. Parliament Street, Westminster. Lord Mahone's History of England. Now Ready, Volume 2. To be completed in seven volumes, post 8 Veal, 6 S. A History of England, from the Peace of Utrecht to the Peace of Versailles, 1713 1783. By Lord Mahone. Third and Revised Edition. A volume to be published every two months. John Murray, Albemarle Street. The Devereux Earls of Essex. Now ready, with portraits 2 vols 8 veal, 30 s. Lives of the Earls of Essex, in the reigns of Elizabeth, James I., and Charles I., 1540-1646. Founded upon many unpublished private letters and documents. By Captain, the Hon, Walter Borsia Devereux, R.N. John Murray, Albemarle Street. Just published, pages 720, plates 24, price 21s. A history of infusorial animalcules, living and fossil, with descriptions of all the species, and abstracts of the systems of Ehrenberg, Dujarda, Kutzing, Siebold, and C. by Andrew Pritchard, Yescu, MRI. Also, price 5s. A general history of animalcules, with 500 engravings. Also, price 8s. 60. Micrographia, or Practical Essays on Microscopes. London, Whitaker and Company, Ave Maria Lane. To all who have farms or gardens. The Gardener's Chronicle and Agricultural Gazette. The Horticultural Part edited by Professor Lindley. Of Saturday, March 12th, contains articles on Acrophyllum Venosum, by Mr. Barnes. Aphilandra Cristata. Asparagus to Salt. Books noticed. Calendar, horticultural. Agricultural. Carrots, culture of white Belgian, by Mr. Smith. Cattle disease. Cherries select. Coffee leaf tea. Coppice wood value of. Diodar the, by Mr. Kemp. Drainage land. Dyes lichen, by Dr. Lindsay. Farming, Welsh, by the Rev. T. Williams. Farm buildings and sea. Flowers, new florist. Fruit trees stocks for. To protect on walls by Mr. Bundy. Guano, adulteration of. Holland House Gardens. Hollyhocks select by Mr. Downey. Indian Pink, introduction of into Europe. Irrigation and liquid manure by Mr. Mechie. Ivy, as food for sheep. Level, new by Mr. Daniels. Lichens, dying properties of by Dr. Lindsay. Emplashens Tree Lifter, with engravings. Manure Poultry by Mr. Tolette. Liquid by Mr. Mechie. Mice to Kill by Mr. Bennett. Mexican Oaks and Their Silkworms. Mustard Seed Price of. Onions Preparation of Ground Four by Mr. Simons. Peat Carbonis by Mr. Towers. Railway Slopes Planting of. Societies Proceedings of the Botanical of Edinburgh, National Floricultural and agricultural of England. Tea coffee leaf. Trade memoranda. Tree lifter, emglashens, with engravings. Trout, introduction of to New Zealand, by Mr. Gurney. Tubing, gutta percha, by Mr. Key. Walls, to protect trees on, by Mr. Bundy.
walls glazed, weeds and sulfuric acid, wheat, lowest weeden system of growing. The Gardener's Chronicle and Agricultural Gazette contains, in addition to the above, the Covent Garden, Mark Lane, Smithfield, and Liverpool prices, with returns from the potato, hop, hay, coal, timber, bark, wool, and seed markets, and a complete newspaper, with a condensed account of all the transactions of the week. Order of any news vendor. Office for Advertisements, 5. Upper Wellington Street, Covent Garden, London. Autographs. Just published, post 8 VO, 1S, or post free for 12 stamps, a catalog of autograph letters, portraits, and C. Topography. In the press, will be ready in a few days, price 6D, or post free for 6 stamps. A catalog of books, prints, Mrs., and C. On County and Family History, Heraldry, and C. Miscellaneous Catalogues of Book Autographs. Parts 36 to 39. Gratis, or post-free for four stamps. London, John Gray Bell, Bedford Street, Covent Garden. Wanted, for the Ladies' Institute, 83. Regent Street, Quadrant, Ladies of Taste for Fancy Work, by paying 21s, will be received as members, and taught the new style of velvet wool work, which is acquired in a few easy lessons. Each lady will be guaranteed constant employment, and ready cash payment for her work. Apply personally to Mrs. Thuffy. NB ladies taught by letter at any distance from London. Printed by Thomas Clark Shaw, of No. 8 New Street Square, at No. 5 New Street Square, in the parish of St. Bride, in the City of London, and published by George Bell, of No. 186. Fleet Street, in the parish of St. Dunstan in the West, in the City of London, publisher at No. 186. Fleet Street aforesaid. Dot, Saturday, March 19th, 1853. Thomas Clark Shaw. George Bell.